I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Welcome back after a brief intermission. We needed a little pause for the cause last week. For sure. It happens more and more right now, but you know what? We're doing it. Summer's hard, man. Summer is like unbelievably hard. Yeah. Our first year, I like somehow just did shit. I don't know how I like pulled it out. I think because my kids were younger. Maybe. Um. Mm-hmm. But like, man, I, I don't have a spare minute now. I know. Oh, boy. We also, you know, it was our first year. And we I know. Were we just were just full of energy. We were full of all of the energy. <laughs> all of the time. You can't really sustain that, though. No, we're, we're trying, though. We are. Oh, I mean, you, you can sustain the, the work we're doing. Yes. But the enthusiasm yes. for the constant work, that you got to scale back on or you'll die. Yes. As I've found out. <laughs> <laughs> had like a hundred doctors at this point tell me like, if you don't start getting less stressed out, I'm going to have to tie you to a chair or something. That that could be really unstressful. No, <laughs> but I can't move then and I can't yeah. keep doing things. <laughs> so anyway, we're back. Yay. Woo. And we have a pretty glamorous case this week. Yes. We are talking about Andrew Cunanan, who is, of course, known to most as the man who murdered Gianni Versace. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of people just um, just kind of dubbed this case the Versace murder. But I think that's a real disservice because that's not like 95% of this case. Mm. So we're going to use Andrew as our header. Okay. And this case, woof, man. Oh, boy. I read um, 210 pages of FBI documents, y'all. Damn. Yeah. The Freedom of Information Act is great, but it also becomes an enormous burden to bear when all of those papers are just served up to you on a silver platter. <laughs> I'm like, I have to read them if they're there. I can't just not. Oh, boy. But let me tell you something. Um, going through that fine print for that long of a time, I'm pretty, pretty weathered after yeah. doing that. Pretty pale. I feel it pretty groggy. And now the weather is finally nice. Right. I mean, you would think it was like the dead of winter looking at you. I know. And it's like a beautiful summer day. Mm-hmm. And now I have to go out there in like a bathing suit and pretend I'm not a swamp witch. Well, what can we do? I don't know. You see, I've explored all the possible options to get rid of the swamp witch face that I have going on, but nothing really seems to work. Mm. There is one ancient remedy mm. that I truly believe can counteract all of this stress and time. Do you want to know what that is? Yes. A healthy dose of validation. Hill worth dying on. That's what it is. You know what? That just came out of me. And you just like, I just your soul knew. knew it. I just knew. Perfect. Wow. Where did that come from? I, the gods. <laughs> the gods. It came straight from them. Okay. And best of all, Leslie, our fiends can give us this priceless ingredient totally for free. You got to be kidding me. No. How? But how, you must be asking yourself. Yes. I hear you doing it. 
Well, I will tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for all of you. That's nice. Huzzah! But if you just cannot wait for more, we would be dead in your life. I get it. Mm -hmm. I get it. We're great. But don't worry. You don't have to. You can simply support us over on Patreon. I don't know where that came Basie, from. Basie, <laughs> like, things are just coming to you this they week. Are, yeah. You're just being possessed yeah. by the spirits. Man, we're Versace's gonna... coming through. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. I want some Versace. <laughs> anyway, over on Patreon for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after show host mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. We talk about pie a lot. You'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, an opportunity to participate in giveaways, merch deals, an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. That sounds lovely. Yay, doesn't it? And if all of that is like a little too overwhelming for you, sometimes I get it. Things can be a lot. You can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. That's a good one. I know that's that's probably the only choice you should even think about. I wouldn't even offer the other ones. (laughs) Right. I mean, I have to because now it's like something I read every week. But still, do both. You can also um, leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell your friendly neighborhood sugar daddy. Ooh, a zaddy. Mm, Yes. What's his name? Uh, All right. Well, since we are talking about an Italian today. We are. um, Salvatore Ricci. (laughs) Oh, he's got two names. Okay. All right. Then your friends and Salvatore can become fiends and we can all hang out together. And like, maybe he'll pay for everything. Yeah. Old Sally. Yeah. (laughs) We just have to bat our lovely eyes at him and be like, but we need more champagne. (laughs) We need it. Give me money. Give me money, please. Mm. Yeah, that'll work. I think so. Yeah, I think so. We sound great. (laughs) We We sound like anyone would say yes. (laughs) oh boy oh man well uh, I think that is all I have in the way of announcements for this week Leslie do you have anything to add before we begin uh I do not all right then I do not yeah there oh there's still those stickers yeah still get stickers um for our pride month we will continue to sell them yeah they will be available throughout the whole year but we will be donating a um a nice sizable check to the Trevor Project. <sighs> so excited! So, we'll be able to announce the final tally probably in uh, either next week or the following. Yeah, yeah. For just for say. our Pride Month donation, we will continue mm-hmm. to donate. But right now, this is going to be like a big one. So yeah, that'll just be our initial one, and then we'll continue to collect for the year. But this is just our first push for it. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So if you go over, you could find the link on our social medias in our like our bio Mm -hmm. link as well 
but it's uh it's under the buy me a coffee but you just go on and you donate ten dollars you could donate more but every ten dollars that you donate we will also send you a sticker that was custom designed by our youngest little fiend uh, who really wanted to show her support for the lgbtq community and um and yeah and you'll get the sticker in the mail yeah. And then um, you can show your support as well. Yeah. And thank you guys who have been sending us pictures. I am going to put up a gallery pretty soon. I was waiting for like a little more to roll in. Uh, I love seeing where you put them. I love seeing that you have them. I love seeing that you are proudly displaying them. It makes Violet so happy. Mm-hmm. So if you did buy a sticker, please, please, please post a photo of it to social media and tag us. Yes. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you guys for being such a great support and for supporting the Trevor Project, which is an amazing foundation. You should look them up and read all about them. I think that's all. That's all I got. All right, then. On with the show. It is July 15th, 1997 in South Beach, Miami, Florida. Yeah. Hot, hot, hot. I know. We're somewhere fun. It is 8.30 a.m. The sun rose that morning at 6.39, and so by 8.30, the temperature was already pushing 80 degrees. Still hours away from the daily cloudburst and a month away from hurricane season, the sun felt free to shine brightly on Casa Pazarina, a stunning Mediterranean revival-style mansion. The gleaming white walls and clay tile roof evoke an unmistakable sense of old world wealth, glamour, and luxury, and the elaborate black iron gates with gold accents and panels of the signature Versace Medusa head in front hinted that whoever lived behind those gates was not to be trifled with. Gianni Versace was walking home from the cafe and newsstand he paid a visit to nearly every morning for periodicals and the occasional pastry. He bought magazines like every morning. Yeah, I love that. This is so 97. I love a routine with a little pastry. Sometimes he would stop for a coffee and chat and get a pastry. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, here's the thing that really strikes me about that. Gianni Versace was like a king. Right. He had an an unbelievable fortune. This beautiful mansion was just one of his homes. Mm -hmm. He has more. And he was like the king of the fashion world at that point in time. He is a big fucking deal. Right. And he's walking down Ocean Drive, the main drag in Miami and South Beach, just to get his magazines, no security, no nothing, not in a golf cart, just strolling, saying hi to people, sometimes having a little chat and a little coffee, a little pastry. I love that. I think that speaks a lot about him too. Right. One, that's a lot of confidence. And two, that's just somebody who likes living. Yeah, he's very European. He's super European, mm. which makes sense. He's Italian. <laughs> but also like, I don't know, that just gives me a different image in my head of this famous person than it would if he was like, you know, bodyguards. And, right, you know, right. like, that's just not, that wasn't the life he lived at all. Right. He was very comfortable in Miami too. He felt that he really found a home there Mm -hmm. and that, you know, like the people of Miami were his people. So why wouldn't he be safe with his people, you know? So anyway, at his home, his partner, Antonio, who's like super handsome and was played by Ricky Martin in the recent TV. Really? Retelling? TV retelling? I I assume that. Ryan Murphy did it. Oh. It's the the second installment of American Crime Story. I think it's the second. 
Um, but yeah, he does the whole, I'll talk more about it in a little bit, but um, okay. it's beautiful. So okay. yeah, but um, I don't know how I missed this. <laughs> so is Ricky Martin. So yeah, okay. that gives you a little hint. Um, so his partner Antonio is there. He and Antonio had actually been together for 15 some years. This was kind of like a marriage, like mm-hmm. when Gianni Versace eventually, spoiler alert, does die. His will is a, like a, a lot of his assets are left to Antonio. Okay. So this is basically his husband. And uh, his friend Lazaro were also there waiting for him. And they were sitting. Yeah, these names. I know they're so good. And they were sitting in the dining room of Casa Casarina, which I imagine was bathed in like the exact right amount of golden morning light. Mm-hmm. It's just like perfect. This is a place where I imagine the coffee is strong and sweet and the linens are crisp, but never smell like bleach. Yeah. Oof. I know. That. Like heaven. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> Now, this is a portrait I'm painting you right now of before. It feels perfect and untouched, but in 15 short minutes, all of that would change. Mm. Quote, when the light is fading, I look at the facades and they start to dissolve. End quote. By July 15th, 1997, Andrew Cunanan had already been on the run for about six weeks, having left two bodies behind in Minnesota, one in Chicago and one in New Jersey, Because it always comes back to New Jersey. That's another hill I will absolutely die on. (laughs) Andrew had landed a spot on the ultra-exclusive FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. Wow. I know. Only the top 10. Yeah. That's amazing. That's an accomplishment. VIP. And therefore, his information had appeared on the television series America's Most Wanted. He was also on TV. Shout out to John Walsh, the actual goat. Mm -hmm. Andrew had, quote, Few friends, but lots of acquaintances. Now, lots of people who were interviewed about him say this. That he had a lot of, he knew a lot of people, but he wasn't really close to a lot of people. Okay. Which, I mean, we've seen before. According to his 210-page file, it would seem that while he didn't, like, have a ton of places to crash, there were plenty of people wandering around that might potentially recognize him, at the very least. Um, because Miami has a pretty thriving gay culture, and he was really involved in that. Gotcha. So despite this fact, Andrew had made his way to Miami and elected to hide in pretty plain sight. Even though he was walking around, going to bars and restaurants, and occasionally using his real name, making credit card purchases and hotel phone calls, the authorities just couldn't catch up with him. And the talk about him, well, it had turned rather unflattering. Mm. There were newspaper articles and reports on the evening news, and they all had begun saying that Andrew Cunanan was something of a fraud. And so we find ourselves on that same July morning, walking down Ocean Drive in well-worn sneakers towards Casa Casarina. This time, our vantage point is under the bill of a cheap baseball cap and behind a pair of thinly rimmed glasses. The same sun shines and the same birds sing but we have left behind the optimism of strong, sweet coffee and clean linens that smell like probably lavender, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no stress there. This path, however, is lined with sweaty desperation, bitter jealousy, and defeat. And it isn't supposed to end in a sun-drenched dining room. This path knows that it both starts and ends with a gun. In a moment, our two paths will converge and everything will be different. But how did we get here? And more importantly, why? I mean, you don't just arrive at a place where you weigh your options and decide to kill a celebrity overnight, right? It's like a pretty wild thing to do. So let's pause here and go back for a little while. 
And maybe when we make it to this moment again, we'll understand things a little better. Then again, maybe we won't. Ooh, Holly. I know, this is a weird one. (laughs) So the quotation that I read at the beginning of this section was from a postcard Andrew had sent years earlier to the man he called the love of his life. And we'll get to David later. Now, I read a lot of Andrew's letters and postcards, and truly they were the most revealing part of the FBI file because it was just pages and pages of his words from him. Mm -hmm. So you could really kind of get a feel for how he spoke, what he found important, and how he projected himself. And I feel after reading those that I know who this person is like a whole lot better. But that one sentence, quote, when the light is fading, I look at the facades and they start to dissolve. Mm. So perfectly encapsulates his whole story that I just had to include it word for word. Yeah. So to that end, let's build the facade. Okay. Andrew Philip Cunanan was born on August 31st, 1969 in National City, California to Modesto Dungal Cunanan, who went by Pete, much simpler, and Mary Ann Chilachi, who I assume went by Mary Ann. Yeah. <laughs> um, National City is located in the South Bay region of San Diego, the metropolitan San Diego area. I don't know what any of this means, but if you live in California, you sure do. (laughs) Um, In southwestern San Diego County, um, this town has a, or city, I'm sorry, has a population of over 50,000. That's a lot, obviously. Mm -hmm. Like we've talked about some places with slightly bigger populations, but usually we're in a town that's a lot smaller. And it does boast a bunch of other famous people who came from there, like, uh, like like a bunch of sports guys. Okay. And Tom Waits. (laughs) (laughs) they're very accomplished and they're sports ladies too. They do nothing for me. Uh, It also holds an area that boasts the title of, quote, San Diego's oldest gang neighborhood. Well, that's an accomplishment too. I mean, they're just churning them out left and right. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So if you ever find yourself in National City, you can actually go on a, quote, hood tour. Oh. I'm not kidding. Well, that's... They sell tickets. I'm kind of interested. You can go. I mean, it was the the crime rate in this area in the 80s and 90s was astronomical, but it has since gone down a lot. Mm -hmm. Like they've cleaned it up. Otherwise, you wouldn't be booking a ticket for the hood tour. I mean, and you can do that. I wouldn't, but you can. It just sounds like a really white thing to do. Yeah, it it (laughs) absolutely is a very white thing to do. It's like, but I, I do believe it is also historical. It's like the history yeah, of yeah. major gangs. Well, that's what in I'm wondering California. if it is, but it just has like a catchy name like that. A hundred percent, yes. It's probably some like white guy or like hopefully very highly played black guy that's like, I fucking hate this. Let's talk about the hood. Yeah. Or, or like you said, it could be really educational. It could and be. Like, Guys, if any of you have taken a hood tour, would you please uh, weigh in and let us know what it's like? Yeah, because I am now interested. Yeah. We have so many tours in Cape May. Cape May has tons of tours. I love going on tours in different towns. You can go on a ghost tour. You can go on a historical tour. An underground railroad tour. Cool. Cemetery tours. There's lots of tours. This is a hood tour. Yeah. (laughs) But don't worry. Our story doesn't stay in National City for too long. Andrew's father, Pete, was born in the Philippines after and after immigrating to the United States, he joined the Navy and served for 19 years. It's a long ass time. 
Pete truly embraced the storybook American dream concept where you can like build an empire from nothing. He thought that America was going to make him like a Rockefeller, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so because of this, he tended to live way, way, way beyond his means. He loved fancy things, big houses, nice cars, and he always wore an incredibly fancy suit, even if it wasn't a suit-wearing occasion. Okay. Still in a suit. I like it. I know. I don't know when there isn't a suit-wearing occasion. I mean, I don't know either, but they were all suit-wearing occasions for Pete. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just, well, I think that's appropriate. It did pay off because in 1961, <laughs> Pete met Marianne in a bar, and he was wearing a white tuxedo. Okay. Now, I have no idea what kind of establishment this was. It's not really stated wh what the name of the bar was or anything. But I like to imagine it was a total dive and nobody else was dressed up. <laughs> and he just like floats in in a white tuxedo. Right. <laughs> um, I, that's a bold move to be sure. But if you can go in that confident, the world is pretty much your oyster. Yeah, for sure. Marianne was instantly swept off her feet. Like, and most of us would be. <laughs> most of us, if we weren't like, who is that crazy person? Right. Would be like, Wow. <laughs> You must be important. Yeah. Coming to this dive bar in your tuxedo. Where were you before this? <laughs> Did you just get married? What's happening? This is why he's so good with money because he like saves it on liquor. Like right. He doesn't spend a lot when he's out. Well, he's <laughs> terrible with money, but yeah. he looks like he's great with it. Yeah. Uh, Marianne recalled saying she thought Pete looked like a Filipino Errol Flynn. <laughs> I don't know what any of that means. Well, Filipino means he's from the Philippines. Well, yes. <laughs> Errol Flynn was um, a movie, oh, like a silent movie oh, star. Yes, yes. And he was, his mythology is like he died with the most STDs. <laughs> yes. he, oh. he just slept with so many women. Yeah, he played like pirates and Robin Hood. And he oh, was I recognize. Handsome. Oh, yeah, Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've seen him. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, hey, uh, guys, if you want to hear about Errol Flynn, I will do a whole thing about him. I think he's very interesting. Not today, mm -hmm. another time. But anyway, so Marianne and Ooh, Pete. and his middle name was Leslie. Ooh, good one. There it is. I love it. And my son's name is Flynn. Yeah. Oh, We need an Errol. <laughs> Somebody get a pet. One of us needs a pet named Errol. <laughs> okay. So Marianne and Pete enter a whirlwind courtship almost immediately. She's like, yeah, dashing guy in a tux, I'm in. But Pete was still in the Navy, so he had to be overseas from time to time. So it was kind of like, you know, one of those military romances. By the time they got around to actually getting married, Marianne was six months pregnant with their first child, a son who they would name Christopher, which I can't imagine went over tremendously well with Marianne's incredibly religious Catholic family. But that's neither here nor there. So Marianne was also 11 years younger than her swashbuckling, mustachioed, fancy pants husband and from an Italian Catholic family, which mm. is an environment we can both comment on. Yes. <laughs> so you know that like coming home, not married and pregnant might not be your best. It's not the best. It's not the best, especially not in 1961. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So. But did they work with it? Because I feel like they, they did work with it. They did work with okay. it. Yep, precisely. <laughs> So they like, just it's were not like, ideal, but we'll deal. You're going to have to get married. And if that's already in the cards, just keep it rolling. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. fine. Wear a tent if you have to. Don't let anybody see it until we're done. Yeah. <laughs> you know the drill. Keep it covered, Marianne. <laughs> Marianne, keep your shit together. I know he's in a tuxedo. <laughs> Why? You couldn't have waited. 
<laughs> Can you blame her? I know. <laughs> no. Anyway, Marianne. <laughs> Marianne had the kind of traditional lady values wherein she just really wanted to be a stay-at-home wife and mom, and that's what she did. And if that's what you want to do, that's fucking great. So she tended the house and took care of everything. And um, they quickly just started having babies, obviously. They had three before Andrew was born. He was the fourth and final child in his family, which makes him the baby, and that's that's really tracks. (laughs) Um... His siblings, Elena, Regina, and Christopher, have all stated in interviews that Andrew was treated differently. They said he was spoiled and doted on and whatever he wanted, he got. Yes. For whatever reason, his parents just, a a switch flipped when he was born and he was different than the rest of them. They just get tired. Uh, No, (laughs) that's what most of us, that's what happens. Not with them. They went into like overdrive with their last one. So, I mean, like before Andrew, they seemed to kind of live a pretty even keeled life. I mean, he was in the military, so he was gone from time to time, but it was just like a pretty traditional kids home work thing. However, when Marianne was pregnant with Andrew, Pete had gone off to fight in the Vietnam War. Hmm. And this left Marianne at home to care for everything by herself for like a really long time. As an experienced mom, one would think that pregnancy would be a breeze for her. This is her fourth kid, but it wasn't. She was sick this time and things were really difficult. And she had like three little kids in the house. And with her husband off fighting in the war, she was left to support everyone alone. That's rough. I can't imagine how hard that is. Pete was actually still in Vietnam when Andrew was born. And going through all of this alone took a toll on Marianne. And she developed pretty extreme postpartum depression which she eventually had to be hospitalized for, for three months. Wow. Yeah, like inpatient, three months. She was hospitalized after Pete came home. And so when he was home, he was like doing everything. But instead of just kind of suffering through it like she did, he really used it. He was like, I'm taking care of everything. I'm a saint. Look at me. Mm. I'm giving our children all the love they need. I'm providing for them. We have a good home. I'm doing it all. Okay. Now, something about Marianne's traumatic pregnancy and Pete missing out on this child's birth seemed to be what kind of triggered how they viewed Andrew differently than their other kids, I guess. He was golden. There's no two ways about it. And they told him constantly that he was not only special, but he was beautiful, destined to be rich, well-known and respected, and more important than anything else, that he was better than other people. Ah. You're better than them. You're better than people. And he, like, really took this in. Well, yeah. And you would if you were told that since the time you were born. They made sure that Andrew knew all of these things. So soon after Andrew's birth, Pete retired from the military and began working as a stockbroker. And I'm going to put that in pretty hard air quotes because I don't know exactly how much brokering he was doing. We'll get to that in a few minutes. The family moved from National City, home of the most famous hood, to Bonita, California, which is Bonita. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's just a one town over, but it's smaller and safer and like more suburban and chill. Okay. Um, so true to their assessment, Andrew grew into a very intelligent, charismatic, and demanding child. You would, you know. <laughs> By third grade, his IQ was 147. And FBI documents say 160, but every other document in the world says 147. So I think this is a case of like one person got it wrong and the FBI just left it in their file. But you know what? Who knows? It could be either one. 
And and really either one is in, seems kind of like crazy high, right? Yeah. But here's the thing about IQ testing. It takes your age into account, right? Nobody seems to clock this, but an IQ of 147 at nine years old is not the same as an IQ of 147 at 29 years old. He was without a doubt a bright kid, but I have a kid who is technically a genius as well. Violet's IQ is like way off the charts. Her psychiatrist told me immediately though, after saying that, that while that's cool, it doesn't mean she should be doing things that other nine-year-olds can't. This is back when she was nine, obviously. It means that she has enormous potential and could get bored very easily Mm -hmm. if we didn't watch carefully. Right. She was still nine, just smart nine. Right. So you may read in, I don't know, every article about Andrew that he was a genius killer. But I simply don't think that's very true. He was smart nine, but we have no idea where he was at 27, you know. (laughs) And while his IQ meant that he had enormous potential, that doesn't account for what he chose to do with it. Right. IQ alone isn't as powerful as people give it credit for being, but it was awfully important to Andrew's parents because it confirmed that their golden boy was indeed golden. Andrew was always a voracious reader, though, and he was especially fascinated by comic books and things that chronicled the lifestyles of rich, richer, and richest people. Yeah. Andrew loved escaping in his mind into a wealthy and indulgent fantasy world. I'm thinking the superhero things were like Batman superheroes, where he came from, like, wealth. Right. And then also fought crime, you know? I'm feeling like it's that kind of thing. Because that's the vibe I really get. But his parents like loved this. They were like, yes, you are a little rich boy superhero and we love you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Even though like if you're Batman, that means you guys are going to not do well. Right. Anyway. (laughs) There's never a good origin story for the best of the superheroes. (laughs) It's never like they had a great time. And then they thought, you know what? Maybe I need to fight injustice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I had a wonderful family life. Everything really I rich, want. Yeah. like childhood. It was great. Never had to once think about the outside world. School but now, was easy. But now I feel like I should. It's time to give back. Yeah. No, it's always like I was drugged through the mud by my eyeballs, and all of my family was killed. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess while I'm getting revenge for my family, I'll help some other people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed. Except for he didn't do any of the helping or the revenging. He just um, did the killing part. Okay. Yeah, not great. But Pete would even give Andrew a book called The Amy Vanderbilt Complete Book of Etiquette, A Guide to Contemporary Living. I know. So that he could study how the rich were supposed to behave and live and then act like that. I feel like this is something my mother would have given me. Leslie. Leslie. This is how the this is how you're supposed to behave. <laughs> this is how rich ladies are. Yeah, so no. if you could just memorize it. <laughs> yeah. Act like it. That would be great. Fake it till you make it. (laughs) All good. I always joke with the kids that I'm going to send them over to my mother's house for like etiquette training. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, yes, send them. Please. (laughs) God, maybe they need the Amy Vanderbilt Complete Book of Etiquette, A Guide to Contemporary Living. Yeah. My mother still like gives me the death stare if she sees an elbow on the table when I'm eating. She just stares at it. And then at me. <laughs> I'm like, where? Oh, no. <laughs> Mother. 
Mother Dee Dee. I can't control my <laughs> elbows. My joints do what they want. No. But anyway. <laughs> She's wonderful. I love my mother. We do love Diane. <laughs> but anyway, this is this is just kind of proof that they like fully believed he belonged in this rich world. They were like, well, this is where you belong. So you're going to have to know how to act. Okay. And every whim of Andrew's was totally catered to. When the family left their smaller home in Bonita for a bigger one, still in like mm-hmm. Bonita, I believe. Andrew was like, I want the master bedroom. I want the big one. And they were like, yes, of course. Yeah. So the parents took a little bedroom. He got the master bedroom with the in-suite bathroom. Well, yeah, they're building a star. Yeah, you're right. That's very true. Mm -hmm. That ego needs a lot of room. And that's exactly what they were thinking. Like, we need him to expect this kind of treatment everywhere and walk through the world as though he deserves it. And boy, did he. Pete and Marianne took a smaller room, obviously, as I said. And as soon as Andrew could drive, they got him a shiny, beautiful sports car. The other kids were like, get what you can. Here's like some bullshit, an old (laughs) clinker, pay for your old car. And they were like, Andrew, here's like a beautiful new red sports car. This is wild. It's so imbalanced. It's insane. Like the way they treated the other kids and the way they treated Andrew is totally unrelated. Yeah. It's nuts. But they all lived in the same house. Imagine being those other kids being like, what the fuck, man? I just see them in like rags. <laughs> Basically, they were like sharing bedrooms and driving shit cars. And he was like in the master suite with his sports car. Right. And it gets worse. Public school may have been good enough for the older three children, but not Andrew. In 1981, he was enrolled in the Bishop's School in the rich and bougie La Jolla neighborhood in San Diego. Now, the Bishop's School is an, an exclusive college preparatory day school. So he was like, prep to the max, surrounded by the richest people ever. And Andrew did well in high school because he was smart. He was popular too because he was, you know, charismatic and confident. And you guys, let me just tell you something. If I impart one piece of advice to any of you at all, it's that the only thing that really matters is confidence. Yes. It truly is. Mm -hmm. It's the hardest thing to build and to have. But if you do that, you really can walk into anywhere and do anything. Yes. Absolutely. It's true. And that's and he had that. So, you know, he was doing pretty good for himself. He was voted least likely to be forgotten in his senior class. And uh, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy now, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, during this fancy pants school time, Andrew's parents had begun living separate lives, though. He started to be abusive towards Marianne mm-hmm. for many years. And while they were no longer in love, they had agreed to stay together until Andrew was 18. Like, fuck those other kids, but we'll keep it together for him. Then then he would go off to college and they could get a divorce. Right, you know. yeah. That went about as well as you would expect it would go. But it did fool Andrew. He thought his parents were happy and that, like, his dad beating the shit out of his mom sometimes was just, like, the way the world worked. It was fine. That's rough. Yep. But it's interested with these other kids. No, they're just like quiet in the background. Like, I won't speak at all. Hmm. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't exactly tension-free in the Cunanan household. And so during this time, Andrew began to spin fairy tales he passed off as his real life. And now he would tell people his father was Filipino royalty, that his father's family was incredibly rich and had like lots of land or big businesses in the Philippines, that they were very influential He would tell them that his own immediate family were filthy rich and traveled the world. Yeah, he inflated himself into like a very big, big shot. The lies became quickly pathological. So this is something that goes forever. He is like 
the lying is a thing that is ingrained in him and he does it forever. And his lies always centered around being very, very rich and having lots of things Mm -hmm. and being important. Always what he wanted to talk about. At 17, Andrew came out as gay and quickly realized that um, he could get older men to finance the lifestyle he wanted if he just kept company with them or slept with them. Right. So that's what he did. Now, I should define this a little further. Andrew didn't have straight up clients like a sex worker. Well, like what we would call a prostitute, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It's all under the umbrella of sex work. He had sugar daddies, older men who would have relationships with him, but would also lavish him with money and gifts. He would get monthly allowances, whatever he wanted, they would give to him, whether it be clothing or jewelry or fancy meals. He just got anything he wanted because he was like the pretty young prep that was on their arm. Right. Mm -hmm. He was their trophy boy. Not to mention... I did say he started doing this at 17. Mm -hmm. That's a minor. That never gets dealt with, but it did not escape my gaze, just FYI. So anyway, he wasn't really shy about this lifestyle either. Um, There's a photo of of Andrew in his senior high school yearbook where he's like standing against a brick wall outside and he has on a white collared shirt and a tie, but the shirt is totally unbuttoned and he's like (laughs) bare chested and clearly he's been like working out. So he's in like his best shape and he has this big beaming smile and like boy band uh, 90s middle part hair. So he was like, I'm pretty great. Yeah. Look at me. (laughs) Um, He also showed up at events with like his older man dates. He'd be like, prom, here I am. This is my boyfriend. He's 45. He bought me this jumpsuit. It's red latex. It was $7,000. Let's go. (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the kind of shit he did. He was very flashy and very forthright about it. And um, all of this might seem a little obnoxious, but at this point, Andrew had cultivated a confident, rich boy, clever, and intelligent persona, and people loved it. They ate it up. Like, that sounds fun. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be like, what? We're friends? Yes. He's so fun. Can I have a jumpsuit too? What are we doing? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Especially, uh, take it with a grain of salt if you don't agree with me on this one, but like fucking especially high school girls. Yeah, for sure. You're a 17-year-old high school girl and that kid is your friend. You're like, Fuck yes, life is good. <laughs> oh boy. No, I would have been the one like, I just, I'm really nervous for you. <laughs> no, you would be in peak pop culture, fancy as can be. He would be like, don't be too nervous. Here's a Rolex. Be like, you're right. Mm-hmm, thank <laughs> you, right. buddy. <laughs> and and I say that as like hyperbole, but it's not really. That is how he was with his friends right. eventually. He just gave them everything. Because that's always the person that's the most insecure, right? The one that wants to, to like give people stuff in order to keep mm-hmm. friends. Um, and whether that be money or meals or simply a friend who was really glamorous, that's kind of what he's cultivating here. After high school, Andrew enrolled at the University of California, San Diego, where he declared a major in American history. See what I mean? His potential is great, but it's nothing on its own. Not that this is a nothing college, but the way he was talked about, Andrew would be expected to be at, you know, like Harvard or Stanford. But he wasn't. He just went to a normal-ass college. Right. While in college, Andrew discovered gay bars. 
where he could meet more older men who were happy to fund his lifestyle in exchange for certain favors, obviously. Now, as I briefly touched on before, some people call him a prostitute, which is a term that we don't really like nowadays anyway. But even if we're using it, he wasn't exactly that. He was more of an escort. Yeah. Because there was a relationship element to it. Mm -hmm. And it was long term. And they spoiled him rotten. And would it just be like one at a time or would he have like several? Sometimes several. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sometimes depending on how much what their need was of his time and attention, it would just be one. But sometimes Mm -hmm. he juggled a few. So he was bringing in cash. Right. Honestly, I think I might need a sugar daddy. Am I too old? No. They can pay for my Botox. It'll be fine. Anyway, (laughs) things got worse and worse at home. You're just like, think of the possibility. I know, but not for too long. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Things got worse and worse at home for Andrew. Because remember, at this point, he's still living at home. He may be like entertaining a bunch of sugar daddies, but he lives with his mom and dad, which is wild, right? (laughs) I know. His father, as it turned out, had never really been as wealthy or secure as Andrew thought he was. In 1988, just after Andrew turned 19, it was discovered that Andrew's father had embezzled over $100,000 from his stockbroker job. And his mom found this out. And she was like, well, I'm I'm telling people because, again, their marriage was over, essentially. Mm -hmm. So when Pete found this out, he got obviously pretty afraid of the consequences. And he took every single cent his family had, including the money he got for quietly selling their house out from under them, and ran. Hmm. He moved back to the Philippines without so much as a word. Good guy. He's a good guy. He's great. Marianne scraped up what little she had, um, and they were like living on Pete's uh, Navy pension because that still would come to them even if he was out of the country. And she rented a small apartment. Okay. Which like... No bueno for Andrew. He did not like this. He cannot be living in a small apartment. Now, it is unclear where the other children were, but considering they were older and Andrew was 19, I think that at least some of them lived on their own at that point. Mm -hmm. I think Andrew was the only one living at home. Of course. Right. Why wouldn't he be? But this moment completely destroyed him because he had this, built up this image in his head that his father was like this rich guy and that he was from this rich family lineage. And he found out that that wasn't true at all. And were other people going to find out? Exactly. The facade was dissolving, as it were. Now, it was at this time that Marianne learned through kind of observing his lifestyle that Andrew was gay. And uh, being super duper Catholic meant that she didn't love that. Hmm. Andrew's lifestyle with the men, the clubs, the money, and all of that stuff that comes with it was something that Marianne didn't agree with at all. And so the two of them began to argue. A lot. During one particularly animated fight, Andrew slammed Marianne up against a wall so hard that she dislocated her shoulder. Damn. Andrew. Learned behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Most kids would feel horrible if they ever seriously hurt their mother, even accidentally. I mean, if my kids like trip and, and step on my foot, they feel like shit. They, they don't want to hurt their mom. But Andrew showed no remorse at all. Like not so much as an I'm sorry. He just walked away from that and went on with his life. I mean, that's, that's how his father taught him to live, right? Yeah. Must be okay. Andrew tried to then follow his father to the Philippines, thinking that he must be set up in like a palace there, right? Like he's got to be royalty. I'm not sure whether he had this thought because he believed his father 
was this rich guy or whether he had lied so often about it that he'd begun to believe his own lies. Right. But either way, the result is the same. He was so sure that the situation was going to be great there that he declared he was moving to the Philippines, bought himself a one-way ticket, and flew there. When he eventually found Pete, he was not living in a palace. He was living in squalor in a little shack with nothing to his name. And uh, Andrew did not care for that at all. Mm. He was horrified. So what did he do? He can't be staying in the shack with dad, right? No, he did what he always did. He found the upscale gay bars. He found men who found him attractive. He did what he did and earned enough money to come home. The whole visit to the Philippines lasted about a month. Andrew returned home. Pretty pissed. Yeah. And disillusioned. Your whole world is different now. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be for a minute. But if you if you can think strongly enough that it's not, you can just push past. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's that confident. It, it is that confident. That's the thing. So when Andrew returned to California, the last place he wanted to be was in his mother's stupid little apartment, right? So he instead moved in with his high school best friend. And her name is out there, but there's really no need to say it. She doesn't. She didn't do anything wrong and nobody needs to hunt her down. So he moved in with her and her boyfriend in Rancho Bernardo, which was near a neighborhood called the Castro. The Castro was a neighborhood in Eureka Valley, California, um, and it was one of the very first gay neighborhoods in the United States. So this is like landmark gay territory. Um, It's considered an epicenter of gay culture. So Andrew was like, I need to be there. Right? Okay. So he immediately establishes himself in this scene. Right. He's like, okay, I'm going to be a big deal. I am a big deal. All I have to do is walk in and be a big deal. And I will be. Mm-hmm. And he was. Damn, I need to just do that. I know. He still got a half-hearted like job, also strongly written in air quotes, um, at a at, at the Thrifty Junior drugstore. All right. Thrifty Junior, which was right across the street from where he was staying. And mostly when he was at work, he just read a book and then stole pills from the pharmacy. But you know like clerks. Yeah, it's a job. It was basically just a vague cover-up for the obscene amount of money he was making in other ways. Mm. He also temped real briefly, which meant that he did office work for a local bank for like a few weeks one time. But this was enough to let him tell people that he was a high-powered investment banker. And he had to travel around the globe making big deals, talking to associates. Nice. Okay. But at this time, Andrew was always flush with cash. He made a ton of friends and was always just throwing money around. Anytime he went out with a group of friends, he paid for everyone. He took his friends out for lavish, expensive dinners where they ordered like super expensive bottles of wine and one of everything on the menu. He wore expensive wristwatches and had a pension for designer leather jackets. And I'm not talking like Wilson's leather. I'm talking like Armani. Right. What's really funny is that this case ends in Versace, but Andrew wore mostly Armani and the two were rivals. Interesting. Yeah. Or, I mean, or that makes sense. Could, could be. Andrew was well known at local bars pretty quick and clubs, but he did also continue to lie about who he was to anybody who would listen. He used fake names. When he made reservations at restaurants, he would call himself the Baron Ashkenazi. So he could impress Mater D's and they would give him a table. Whereas if he was just himself, they might not. Right. Yeah. So 
I wish shit like that still worked. I, I know. I wish I could be the sausage king of Chicago, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think of every time someone does that. <laughs> um, but he played the part well. He told people he had houses in Spain and France. He was a wealthy businessman and that his job was building movie sets and that they were making a new Jaws movie that he was working on. But like, shh, don't tell anybody about it. Like, secret information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said that he knew celebrities. The list goes on and on. It's so extensive that sometimes it's hard to know what is true and what isn't. Around this time, Andrew also started using drugs. No big surprise there. I said he was lifting stuff from the pharmacy. Um, mostly he was taking like stolen prescription opiates mm-hmm. um, or, you know, benzos, stuff that you would just, just pills, you know. He also took cocaine and sometimes meth whenever he could get his hands on it. And while he wasn't exactly a drug dealer, he called himself a <clears throat> part-time pharmacist. Ew. I know, isn't that gross? <laughs> yeah, that's what he used. But what that really meant was he was a go-between for drug dealers. So he would like collect money and deliver drugs, but it wasn't his business. He was their lackey. Mm. Um, but he did make a little money doing this. And he also had access to drugs, which is probably more why he was looking to do it. Right. It also could supplement income between sugar daddies if need be. This is lucrative as long as you're not getting high on your own supply, which he most definitely was. Mm. Another thing you should know about Andrew Cunanan is that he was a total chameleon. And looks-wise, I mean this. Whatever look the people he was like in the circle with wanted or idealized, he would adopt that. And there's a picture the FBI has of like six photos of just Andrew's face. And they all look like a different person. It's wild. It'll just be like, is he more tan? Is he wearing his glasses? Is his hair on his forehead? Is it pushed off his forehead? Is it styled? Is it not styled? Just by like tweaking the way he looked, he could like just embody different personas. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at it now. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's the same guy, but Mm -hmm. it really. It even changes like his almost like heritage, like what he. And they say the police say that. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah, because there's like some pictures where he looks just like very white and Mm -hmm. then other ones where he looks more Filipino or Asian or Italian. It's so wild. Depending on what the men he was trying to get in favor with wanted. Yeah. He could look like anything. And he did have that look, which was adaptable in Mm -hmm. several different ways. But if if you're like capitalizing on that about yourself, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Most of us aren't like, I could be six different people. <laughs> that's not, that's not really a thing. Most of us are like, I'd really like to be one people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is a skill that came in pretty handy. But eventually, Andrew settled in on one kind of persona that seemed to work pretty universally. And it helped him stay a kept man for quite a while. Now, according to the Washington Post, he was, quote, and I love this description, The preppy gigolo, son of a stockbroker, graduate of an elite school, supported himself by moving among affluent men who had convinced themselves that they were not paying for sex, rather that they liked to tell themselves they were passing the time pleasantly with a charming, good-looking young man whom they rewarded with gifts and money. (laughs) That's totally it. He told them all different versions of the same story, too. His name was now Andrew De Silva almost all of the time. Mm. And he chose that last name because it is connected to both a long line of Portuguese royalty. Right. And a local California family of wealthy philanthropists. There you go. Philanthropists. Sorry. Yeah. So 
whatever your association with that name was, it goes right to money. Mm-hmm. And he was smart enough to know that and to know that like older men who he said that to would make that connection. Hmm. Which is like kind of scary intuitive. Right. But that's kind of the name of the game here. He told them he was half Portuguese Jewish and half Italian. He said his father was a stockbroker. Uh, he's talked about his elite preppy education. Uh, he never mentions college. So I'm guessing like he might have also stayed uh, a boy for a while. Okay. That was probably also desirable, looking younger and people thinking you're younger, mm-hmm. which is gross, but probably true. Sometimes he claimed to have served in the Israeli army. Some of these men he told he had been married and had a wife and daughter somewhere else. And there's a reason for that. And I'll get right back to it. And that is because many men who engage in sugar daddydom were closeted and married themselves. This is a very, in this time and place, a very like closeted guy activity because they couldn't date freely. So they paid younger men to be their secret companions, Mm -hmm. which is an expensive endeavor. And Andrew knew that these men were the real gold mines. So he wasn't out in the club all the time. He was enough for people to know who he was, but that's not where he found guys. No, no. He went to like upscale gay piano bars. He went to art openings, jazz clubs, and the opera. And while doing this, he would carefully select the men he wanted to approach and then study them, Mm -hmm. which is also a fucking crazy thing to do. If they had an interest, he would learn everything about that interest and then approach them with this knowledge. He was attentive. He listened. He asked questions. He was charming and intelligent. He spoke three languages and smoked expensive cigars and drank sweet drinks. He was also well enough known in younger gay circles that was this became an attractive commodity to these older men. They wanted to know these people. They wanted to go to these parties and events and he was their ticket in. Mm-hmm. Many of them simply wanted this access to trendy nightlife and Andrew could provide that. He would regale them with stories of his high profile and exciting life most of which were like big embellishments or lies, obviously. But only one story would really follow him forever. And this is a good one. According to Andrew, and there are people who will back this up, but there is no actual proof. He met Gianni Versace in 1990 when he was in San Francisco. Now this is Versace. He was in San Francisco to be recognized for designing costumes for the San Francisco Opera's production of Capriccio. So at one point in his career, Johnny Versace designed like costumes. Right. Which is also really fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Which it makes a lot of sense too with his style. Yeah, absolutely. It's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Right. And so after this like ceremony or whatever it was, Johnny goes to a club called Colossus in San Francisco and he's in the VIP room of where Andrew also finds his way because he always finds his way there. Mm-hmm. And while he's there, Versace approaches Andrew and says, I know you. Lago di Como, no. He thought he was somebody else. Oh. Yeah. Andrew, Lago di Como is uh, Gianni Versace's uh, Lake Como house, one of his other homes. Okay. So he was mistaking Andrew for someone he had hosted at a party there. Oh. Um, Wasn't Andrew. Right. But uh, he didn't care about that. Andrew replied with, um, that's right. Thank you for remembering Signore Versace. (laughs) Now, whether this actually happened or not is up for a lot of debate, but Andrew did take this one event and spin a whole fictional relationship with Versace out of it. He knew Versace. He could tell anybody that because technically they had met. And 
And I'm inclined to believe this little encounter happened. Yeah. I, I mean, don't think anything. I, yeah. There, there are definitely, um, there are definitely people who think that more came of it, but uh, I don't think it did. I just think this was a little footnote that people used and then kept going on. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's totally plausible. Absolutely. Anyway, who could blame him for like making a meal out of this little event? Gianni Versace had everything in the world that Andrew wanted. He was a king. In 1994, Andrew met a wealthy businessman named Norman Blatchford. Now, this guy is like, he looks, he's an old white dude. But (laughs) think of an old white dude. That's him. You got it. 100%. Down to the cardigan. (laughs) Andrew turned on the charm and struck up what would be a two-year relationship with Norman. And this relationship resulted in Norman really being his main guy and financing his whole life. He bought him a car. He gave him access to his beach house anytime he wanted. So he was living there, essentially, like lives with Norman, but not with Norman. Mm -hmm. He gave Andrew a $2,500 a month salary to spend, not salary, but like allowance. Stipend. Yep. To spend on himself. And in that point in time, that was a lot of money. He took trips to Hawaii and France with him. Like this was his main guy. And that's a pretty sweet deal for Andrew. But unfortunately for him during this time, he also fell in love with someone legitimately. Mm. And this was a Minnesota-based architect named David Madsen. In December of 1995, the two men met in a bar in San Francisco while David was on a trip. Immediately, though, sparks flew. And anybody who was in the same room says that this is true. The two men spent the night together in David's hotel room. They said they didn't have sex. They just spent the whole night together. But you can believe what you want. And also, it should be noted that Andrew was living with Norman at this time. So he couldn't, like, bring him home, obviously. (laughs) After that night, David and Andrew began a long-distance relationship, during which David's, or sorry, Andrew's trips to France and Hawaii with Norman would happen. And while he was on these trips, he sent nearly daily letters to David. And those are the letters that I read. Letters and postcards, always on hotel stationery or from the location he was in. And he describes this trip as being like, oh, business, business, business. I have a meeting tonight. I got to go see art tomorrow. I'm meeting some people. I'm doing this. My associates are doing that. So boring, but I'm a gal on the go. <laughs> They're all like phrased like that. And he's like, I think I'm going to finally get my Mercedes, but I'm not sure. And then today I took a tour of it in a helicopter. And then I went and saw this. Like, it's all very, here are my things. Here is my money. Here's what I did. Aren't you impressed? I am. Right? And then they're all punctuated with, but I miss your laugh and your smile. I love you. Yeah. It's like a big, long, humble brag signed with all my love. (laughs) At one point, David sends Andrew a care package with a few thoughtful gifts and some food items. And Andrew claims it, quote, has him completely undone. (laughs) He is way over the top. I can read you one of these letters if you want. It's a little one. so good. Yeah, read it. Okay, okay. Dear David. Went to Monte Carlo to the helicopter show yesterday, hence the strip. Things are busy, but I try to make time for fun. What else is there? And of course, to think of you. If I could hold you and sleep next to you, I'd be a new man. I may finally get my Mercedes SL600. You can buy them here a lot cheaper. I feel I deserve it, even if nobody else does. Tomorrow, I go to Paris for three days with a business partner. The world's most romantic city with the world's least romantic guy. Oh, well, miss you and your laugh. Love, Drew. Oh. Yeah, they're all pretty much like that. Some of them have way more brags than that in them, but that's what they sound like. Anyway, 
David and Andrew dated long distance, seeing each other a few times and communicating often for about six months before David began to feel kind of uneasy because a lot of the things that Andrew said to him didn't really add up. And Andrew wasn't exactly forthcoming about his life in other ways. He didn't really explain to him like where he lived or how he lived or what exactly he did. He was just very vague about a lot of things. And that's, that's if you're smart, that's kind of a red flag. Yeah. And David was most certainly smart. In a strange twist of fate, Andrew's best friend, a man named Jeff Trail, ended up moving to Minneapolis. And there he and David would meet up and they became friends because they vaguely knew each other through Andrew. Now, Jeff Trail had been um, a good friend of Andrew's for a great many years. They were just friends. He describes him as like a brother. Now, mind you, Andrew is not otherwise unbusy during this time either. He is steadily developing a drug habit, which can be a pretty time-consuming thing. It also isn't great for your appearance. So Andrew also had steadily gained weight. Oh, okay. And was less meticulous about how he looked. The drug use had brought him more into selling drugs, which introduced him to weapons and more shady dealers and an abundance of risky behavior. Andrew was angry and anxious more often and a lot less fun to be around. And in September of 1996, his sugar daddy, Norman, broke up with him. Oh, Norman had enough. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like you've put on weight. You're like tweaked out all the time. You're not fun. You're not paying attention to me. No, thank you. Yeah. But this was devastating for Andrew. He was now broke with no place to live. A homeless man with a nice car and a Brooks Brothers suit is still a homeless man, right? Yeah. Of course, he quickly sold his nice things, followed by all of his other suits, watches, leather jackets, and jewelry. Staring down the barrel of 30, Andrew had begun to age out of the sugar baby life. This was a major concern because mm -hmm. in order to have a sugar daddy, you got to be a young guy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And when you're like messed out and not looking like the kid with the open white shirt anymore, it's not going to be as easy. So in an attempt to extend his appealability a little while longer, he got himself into the S&M scene where he was considered the preppy boy with a dark secret. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. There are a lot of articles that say he really liked very violent pornography and bondage. I, I didn't explore the violent pornography and bondage he liked. It's just something that is stated. There are no, like, references that, that, that I can back this up with, but a lot of people say it. A different kind of man also started to want to take him home. Okay. Right. At this time, the AIDS crisis had also crested, and gay men everywhere were experiencing still experiencing, I should say, profound fear and grief. I mean, things were a little better in the late 90s for people with AIDS, but it still was like a crisis among gay men. And most gay men, even if they didn't know them now, in the past 10 years, they had seen friends die. Right. Lots of them. So as the ball dropped on the year 1997, and Andrew was alone, struggling and unsure, he tried to think of what his next step might be. But it was kind of hard to figure out at this point because he's in a, like a sauce of badness. <laughs> Through the course of their friendship, Jeff Trail had warned David Madsen about Andrew. So Jeff is the best friend. David is the ex-boyfriend that mm. Andrew's in love with, right? They're good friends. There are a lot of... Andrew goes on to assume that they're like lovers at this point. They're not. They just made friends. That's all. Um, but a lot of media will be like, they were lovers because it's a more mm. interesting story. They were not. So anyway... Jeff told David, like, Andrew lies all of the time. You can't trust him. I, I don't even know what about him to believe and what not to believe. And he's been my best friend. He was my best friend for a long time. I say was because they do have a falling out. 
Andrew had also been acting more and more erratic, and Jeff was afraid that he might do something dangerous. So he urged David to stay away from Andrew. So a word about Jeff and David. Jeff was a military man, a member of the U.S. Navy, and a Gulf War veteran. Jeff graduated um, from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis and then went on CBS's 48 Hours and spoke about his experience as a gay man in the military. This was pretty, like, groundbreaking. Now, he's in silhouette. You can't see his face, but, like, you know, it's him. I think his name was on it. It just you didn't see his face. But this was something that, like, not a lot of people did. Jeff talks about being prohibited from being openly gay and about talking about his sexuality among his fellow service members. He said, quote, gays are here in the military. We perform our jobs and we do it well. You're going to weaken our national defense if you remove gays from the military. You're never going to do it 100%. It's just whether or not you're going to continue to hunt us and force us to fear. It's like he was, good. He, Jeff was awesome, actually. He was a kind soul, a righteous activist, and an actual patriot. This is someone who actually did love his country. He was kind to Andrew because that's just the person he was. Mm-hmm. He may have been the only person who really had a sincere friendship with Andrew. A lot of acquaintances, not a lot of friends. As such, Jeff also knew that Andrew had gone down a dark path and couldn't be trusted. Mm. David Madsen was a rising star architect, and according to just about everyone who ever met him, this dude was an absolute delight. He was genuinely kind of the person Andrew wished he was. He was really charming and charismatic and funny and smart. He was a good friend, really good looking, very trusting and very kind. And those last two things really is what did him in. David was only given little tidbits of biography from Andrew. So in the end, he knew so little of him. And in the end, he believed all the grandiose lies because why wouldn't he? He had no reason not to really, you know when someone tells you something, you kind of just believe it. Right. So to recap, we are now back in 1997. Jeff has moved to Minnesota and struck a friendship up with David. Andrew is selling lots of drugs and slowly losing his grip on reality. And in this process, he begins to say some really freaking wild things. First, Andrew and his friends had developed this little um, inside joke uh, where when something made them mad, they would say, oh, I'm going to go on a five-state killing spree. Ooh. Uh-huh. Now, this came from a moment where one of them was watching a show with Andrew and it featured a moment of like where someone was betrayed by someone else. Mm -hmm. And Andrew said, oh my God, if anyone did that to me, I would go on a five-state killing spree. And they were like, that's hilarious. Mm -hmm. And now it's our inside joke thing and we apply it to everything. Okay. Oh my God, that guy cut in front of you at Starbucks. If someone did that to me, I would go on a five-state killing spree. Right. (laughs) It's funny. It sucks that it's funny, but it's funny. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be, but I, I get where it was. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, and it's, it's good until you remember he like, he did that. Right. Imagine being one of the friends who just thought this was like a fun joke and said it all the time. First of all, you would feel crazy and guilty and terrified that you contributed to this situation. Mm-hmm. But also, mm-hmm. if that's something you say all the time, it's hard to stop saying. I know. And you're like, God damn it, Andrew. <laughs> oh my God. If anyone did that to me, I would go on a strongly worded tirade to people yeah. I trust. <laughs> I'd write the spout off. Newspaper. Exactly. I would give them what for... Tell them some things. I I might give them a drink they didn't like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. Seriously, though. I'd go to five different 
states and cool off. <laughs> I would eat, pray, love my way back to sanity. But in America. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Andrew also around this time picked up more of an interest in violence and guns. Which is never a good sign, but when you're working for violent drug dealers, you probably have to know some things. Right. Second, the AIDS epidemic around him had really kind of gotten into Andrew's head. He was plagued with weird symptoms, um, which he attributed to having AIDS. He was like, oh my God, I have AIDS. I've been this like escort for years and I was not careful and I ended up with like the world's worst STD. But um, really, they also are symptoms of like, you know, being addicted to meth and heroin mm-hmm. and stuff. So it could have been that. I'm just saying. Okay. So I'm, like I'm the drugs were saying. making him more paranoid. Mm-hmm. And then, okay. Yep. So now it's he's all just spiraling. Snowballing. Right. Okay. You got it. But he, he went and got tested at a clinic for HIV and he came up negative, but he didn't really believe this. And he right. also made sure to comment to the phlebotomist who was testing him that if anyone gave him HIV, he would mess them up. Yeah. You know, probably on his five-state killing spree. I know. I know. And, man, that is, I would have totally said that as a hyperbolic joke in front of my friends. I I can't stop feeling bad for the people who thought they were laughing at nothing when they said it. Right. This case is full of, like, weird haunting things for me because, like, I do have a lot of gay friends and I enjoy weird intellectuals. And I can see where a lot of this would have been fun and casual and you would never have thought, that guy's probably a ridiculous murderer. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably would have been friends with this psychopath and we would have worn Gucci sunglasses and went on weekend getaways to posh locations where we would like drink Bellinis and eat ceviche and comment on everyone's outfit and then comment that if anyone tried to make us wear something ugly, we'd go on a five-state killing spree. <laughs> Just saying. Anyway, by the spring of 1997, Andrew was super paranoid and destitute. He had become convinced that someone gave him HIV, even though the clinic told him they didn't have it. He thought Jeff and David must be sleeping together because they hung out sometimes. He had exhausted the patience of a lot of his friends and added alcoholism onto his staggering list of dependencies, hence the weight gain. He was so angry and lonely and desperate that the only thing left for him to do was actually do that thing that was supposed to be a great big joke. In late April of 1997, Andrew told his friends he was leaving San Diego for Minneapolis. And and the interesting thing thing about this is that he bought a one-way ticket. And quote, Jeff was scared that he was going to do something bad. And so at this point, he had elected to cut ties with Andrew and attempted to stay away from him all the time. So they had had like a friend breakup. Okay. He had been like, we can't talk anymore, man. Like, this is too much for me. Right. So he finds out that he's coming to Minneapolis and he's like pretty scared. He urged David to also cut ties with Andrew, but David didn't listen. Andrew had contacted David and said he wanted to come visit, and he agreed. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) which is not great. So, like, when they broke up, when Andrew and David broke up, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, they did stay friends. Okay. Because he's, like, ridiculously needily in love with him, right? So he's going to cling on to any little piece of him he can still have. But Jeff kind of saw through this. He was like, this is not good. And he told his sister that, quote, he did not want Andrew to come. A week before his death, Jeff told a friend that he had a huge falling out with Andrew and said, quote, I made a lot of enemies this weekend. I've got to get out of here. They're going to kill me. Mm. So he knew, like, Andrew's coming and, like, shit's going to go down. On April 24th, Andrew and four friends attended a going-away party at Hillcrest's California Cuisine, 
a rather rare occasion when Andrew did not cover the entire tab. He had reached the credit limit on both his credit cards and had to ask for a credit extension to afford his plane ticket to Minneapolis. So I feel like this was a going away party for himself. Mm -hmm. So he flew to Minneapolis and the next the next day and David picked him up at the airport. And Andrew was staying at David's apartment, even though I believe David wasn't there this one night, with a mutual friend of theirs. So they were like both staying in this apartment, but he wasn't there. He's kind of like, you can just stay there. It's fine. But he did come back, I guess, because Andrew and David had dinner at a nice restaurant. They visited the gay 90s nightclub. Good times. That's what it says. But I feel like there must be a title to this. <laughs> On April 26th, Andrew stayed in Jeff's apartment. So he's bouncing back and forth. I don't know how he got his way in there, but he did. Um, but Jeff was out of town with his boyfriend. So I guess he was like, you can just use my house, whatever. Right. I don't, I don't want to. I'm going to leave town. Because Jeff had his own boyfriend. His name was John Hackett. So the following afternoon, Jeff told his boyfriend that um, he needed to go have a pretty important conversation with Andrew. I'm guessing it was like, you don't get it. Like, we're not friends. You got to go away. When they later returned to the apartment, though, there was no sign of Andrew or any of his belongings. So like, he was supposed to be there and he was totally gone. That evening, Jeff got a phone call from Andrew who said that he had taken Jeff's gun while staying there and that he should come to David's house, where Andrew was presently, and get it. Nope. Yeah, I think I would have been like, I'm not going to do that. But Jeff did. Jeff. I know. When Jeff entered the apartment, Andrew pounced on him and began savagely beating him with a hammer until he was dead. Oh, my God. Yeah, it escalates very quickly. Authorities believe that during that attack, David came home Mm. and saw it happen which unfortunately sealed his fate. Now, you would think that Andrew probably killed David, like, right away, right? He, like, saw this crime. He can't keep leave any witnesses. Oh, no, he did not do that. He held David in his apartment where Jeff's body was rolled up in a carpet for two whole days. So he held him hostage. Yeah, because he, like, loves him. Yep, exactly. But they were still civilized, you know. So Andrew made sure they went out for lunch at, like, a shishi restaurant, A neighbor witnessed both of them in the apartment elevator on April 28th, and another neighbor witnessed the pair walking David's dog on April 29th. So he was trying to present this domestic image of the two of them. While they had a body. While there was a body in the apartment, and and David is being held there against his will. Mm Mm-hmm. That same day, one of David's co-workers, concerned about his absence from work, because he's clearly not going to work, visited David's apartment to check on him. And there he discovered Jeff's body rolled up in a rug behind the sofa. Oh, shit. Yeah. Jeff's watch had stopped at 9.55 p.m. And authorities believe that was when he was killed. Right. So, not good. On May 2nd, David and Andrew were seen north of Minneapolis driving in David's signature red Jeep and eating lunch together in a bar. Initially, authorities were thinking that David was the suspect in Jeff's murder. They were like, oh, well, it's his apartment. He killed him, right? But on May 3rd, David's body was found by a fisherman on the east shore of Lake Rush. He had been shot in the head and the back with a 40 caliber Taurus PT-100 semi-automatic pistol, which was the same one that Andrew had taken from Jeff's house. Mm. Now Andrew's on the run. Well, where do you go? He can't really stay in Minnesota. The cops have already found one body and they're about to find another. And it's going to take them all of 10 minutes to figure out exactly who they're looking for once they find all of these things that they can add up. 
Do we, um, will we know any more, like, reason why he ended up killing David? No. Mm. I think it's because he saw him. But it also could be that he was always one of the targets because he dumped him. He's in love with this guy. He thinks he's, he dumped him to be with his best friend. He's angry. Right. And I mean, and he's still like paranoid. So if he's exactly, and we'll get to that in a second. So let's pause right here. So this is a logical line of thinking. I would assume that you're thinking like that if if you commit these crimes, you think I got to leave the state because I might get caught, right? That's logical. But I'm not sure that's what he was thinking. You see, Andrew didn't really do too much to guard himself against being caught. And he was very arrogant, arrogant enough to believe his dump job would be completely effective. And then again, even this line of thinking is pretty linear. Given what he does next, my money is on the fact that he just wanted the world to see him as a righteous revenge killer, going Mm -hmm. after men he thought could have given him HIV, because that's the rumor that began to circulate. Everyone was like, well, he has AIDS and he's mad that somebody gave him AIDS. David and Jeff, I, I fully believe, were crimes of passion. I believe he was angry. He had convinced himself that they were in an affair together and that Mm -hmm. this guy he was in love with left him for his best friend. And now neither one of them wanted to talk to him anymore. Jeff, um, you know, because he had friend broken up with him and stuff. And I think the rest of his crimes are framing. I think it's one of two things. I think he either goes on the rest of this killing spree so the world will look at him as someone who was out to kill men who who gave him HIV or he really did like lose his tether with reality mm-hmm. and and just began to believe the, all of these men were against him in some way. Okay. So anyway, this is my opinion, but it's our podcast, so I'm allowed to say it. <sighs> After he killed David, Andrew hopped in his signature shiny red Jeep and made his way to Chicago. Now, this is also a power move because Andrew had been gifted a car from Norman, but every time he had to move or go to an event, he would rent a super fancy car. He would like rent a Mustang or a Land Rover or something instead of driving his already nice car. And David's red Jeep was part of his personality. Like if you know Jeep people, you know this is true. So I'm <laughs> guessing that taking it was kind of a big thing. So in the Jeep, he drives directly to Chicago and parks right outside the home of business tycoon and ph- philanthropist Lee Miglin. Now that title sounds like pure fiction, but it's not. Business tycoon and philanthropist. It's even hard yes. to say. <laughs> Basically, this is a very rich old white guy. Like he might have bought a ticket to see the Titanic. <laughs> oh boy. Listen, you guys. Yeah. Do you know how hard it is for me to not talk about that right now? Yes. It's really hard. Anyway. Now there is a lot of speculation as to whether Lee and Andrew knew each other or not. Some people think that this was a random killing, which seems almost impossible given what happens next and how things play out. But some people also speculate that there was a connection because Lee's son, uh, Duke, was an up-and-coming Hollywood actor whom Andrew had spoken to in the past. But no, I don't think it was that either. Let's keep the scene going and see what we can figure out after that, okay? Okay. So it's May 3rd. Andrew had driven straight to this house. Like, he, this house was his destination. He parked on the street, and it's broad daylight, mind you. It's not like the cover of darkness or something. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon about. From here, we don't know exactly what happened, but here is how and what we can piece together. Lee's body was discovered after he failed to meet his wife at the airport that night. He was found in a detached garage on their property. His hands and feet were bound with duct tape. His entire head, except for nostril holes for breathing, was completely wrapped in duct tape. He had been stabbed over 20 times in the chest with a pair of pruning shears 
and his throat had been slit to near decapitation with a hacksaw. These are tools found in his garage. And then his killer had gone into the house, showered, shaved, ate a piece of ham from the fridge, little ham, grabbed the key to Lee's green Lexus, jumped in the car, and left. Ooh. Well, that reminds me of the axe murderer. Didn't he, like, make a sandwich? Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Golden State Killer would do that, too. He'd be like, I need a snack. Yeah. What is that mentality? Confidence? It's fucking confidence. Yeah. That's what it is. Now, if this had been a crime of opportunity, it typically wouldn't have looked like that. How is that, like, an opportunity that you just took? Right. A crime of opportunity, when that occurs, the killer usually doesn't, like, hang out for a while because they have no idea when the rest of the people that live in this house are going to come home. Mm -hmm. They also usually take more than just a car, especially in the home of a multimillionaire when there's, un like, unfathomable assets you could also steal. Right. Lee's family ardently denies that Lee knew Andrew at all, and that's fine. They're allowed to preserve their husband and father however they want to. Mm. But there were also plenty of people who claimed that he was one of those closeted sugar daddies. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Uh Like, he just called him up, and Lee probably hadn't seen him in a while, so didn't realize he was, like, fat and gross now. Ding, ding, ding. So he was Mm -hmm. just like, yeah, come on over. Everybody's gone. Yeah, exactly. Great. He's alone. He would have said something like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. my wife's at work, and I'm meeting her at the airport later, so she won't be home for hours. You know, I wonder how many people he called that won't speak up about it because they'd have to out themselves. You know I what I mean? Know. Like, I wonder if Lee was just one of several calls and he was the one that had a free home. And that's why he went there. Could easily, could easily be that. And those, this is not cell phone times. So yeah. any kind of phone records would be random pay phones. Exactly. So we wouldn't know. Yeah. And nobody's going to be like, you know, he called me first. It could have been me. They'd be like, no, they well, wanted. I don't want to out myself as no. that either. There's other rumors about Lee too. And also there is a, uh, there is a, a pretty infamous photo that's not available anywhere, but there's a picture apparently of the two of them with like their arm around each other at an event. Um, and there are also rumors that Lee was secretly like real into the S&M scene, which would account for all the bondage and the fact that there were absolutely no signs of a struggle at this scene. Mm-hmm. It seemed as though Lee had been wrapped up like that without a fight. I mean, there were nose holes left for him to breathe. Right. And there are people that commented on the way that like his head was bound. They're like, well, that's like an S&M thing. People do that. Mm-hmm. And even if Andrew had a gun, which he did, he had to put it down to do all of that taping up. Mm-hmm. And he didn't use it in this killing. If Lee was in mortal danger, don't you think he might have tried to gain control of the situation at some point? You know, when his attacker put down the gun? He was 72, but he wasn't dead. He was a millionaire, so he's pretty damn healthy. As far as we know, Lee was not HIV positive, but the family didn't have him tested, so I suppose we can never say that with utter certainty. But I don't think that mattered. Andrew would have known they wouldn't test him, and it only needed to look like he may have been HIV positive. All we care about right now is appearances, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's also the matter of overkill. Like, this isn't an, an opportunity. It's not like, bang, bang, let me steal your car. You don't stab a random stranger 20 times and then slit their throat. That's someone you're mad at because they stopped giving you money or someone you want people to think you're mad at because they gave you an STD. Either way, this is a big dramatic scene and I I can't not think it was on purpose. Like this had to be on purpose to this guy. You know, there are people that say like, well, 
he knew that Lee lived there and that he was rich and vulnerable. And so he just picked him out of the air. Hmm. No, I think he was one of the guys that he thought could have given him AIDS, the AIDS that he didn't have. Yep. And I do think that he probably called, like, maybe he ended up just calling Lee first, but he probably called several people. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. He was looking for a place to go, and he knew that, like, that could lead to a change in transportation, too. Hence mm-hmm. the fact that the only thing he took was a car. Yeah. So he also, because, you know, to take that Lexus, he left David's Jeep there. Right. Okay. Yep. You know? Next, Andrew drove the Lexus to a New Jersey cemetery. Well, I mean, he basically just drove it into New Jersey and then the cemetery was... Just happened to be Something there. he saw. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't like, I'm going to go to a cemetery. But he came upon 45-year-old William Reese. Now, William Reese worked at this cemetery and he was like out on break standing next to his car. Okay. So this is like a very opportune looking moment. Andrew pulled up, shot him once in the head, and took the truck. Okay. He just needed a different car. Now, that is a crime of opportunity. Right, or a crime of necessity. It is. You see it, you want it, you got it, you go. That's it. He didn't hang around for a while and, like, do anything weird. It's just in, out, and done. But he did. It's so sad, though. It's super sad, and this guy was apparently, like, Really, really sweet and beloved by his community. He took care of the He took the care cemetery. of the dead. Yeah. I mean, that's an important job that you need a caring person for. But yeah, it's it's fucking terrible. Uh but he, Andrew also did uh leave that green Lexus there. He's that, just um I know, he just keeps leaving his mark. He should have like put that Lexus. I elsewhere, just don't know that he doesn't taken it to a chop shop. Yeah. Any of those <laughs> things would make way more sense. But I don't think, I don't think he doesn't want people to eventually find him. Yeah. I think this was all like, I think he wanted people to know. I don't think there's anything in his life that he did that he didn't want people to know about. Yeah. So like, this was just part of it. Plus, like, there is that sense that people who murder a lot of people are famous for it. Yeah. So... I mean, like, I, we can't ever really know, but I don't, I don't know that he wanted to be that stealth. It seemed like he gave, like, a half-ass effort in every case. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He also was, if he's, like, drugged up at this point, too, mm-hmm. he is also on a mission. And his mission is to, like, get these people that supposedly gave him AIDS. Yeah. Either, possibly. Either possibly. to do that or to make it look like he's doing that. Yeah. One of the two things. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he's on a fucking mission. You're totally mm-hmm. right. And um, I just need to point out that, like, this is this is so clearly different from the way he killed Lee. Right. That, to me, it says, like, we're at a crime of opportunity. He knows how to do that. Mm-hmm. That's not what he did. Right. So it's definitely a different situation. Right. And he definitely knew Lee. Uh, yeah, in my sorry, opinion, but yes. he did. Yeah. So now what Andrew didn't know or take into account or care about, I suppose, was that William Reese had a family. And we... When he didn't arrive home from work at his normally scheduled time, his family sent people to his job to look for him. Mm-hmm. Police, of course, found him dead and his truck gone. And then a suspicious green Lexus parked nearby. And that's it's pretty easy to, like, trace what happened from there on mm-hmm. out because, you know, the FBI is already kind of on to him. And so the Lexus is going to light up like a Christmas tree when they find it. Right. Um. But once uh, he has the truck, Andrew just keeps on driving all the way to Miami Oof. 
She's like a really far drive, guys. I know that they're both on the East Coast, but if you don't live here, let me tell you something. <laughs> New Jersey and Florida are not close. No, that's like, that could be like a 24-hour drive. It is. It's, most yeah. people have to split it up. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And he only stopped once in South Carolina. Well, I mean, other than probably gas and stuff, he had to stop. But only one major stop where he replaced the truck's New Jersey license plates with stolen plates. Mm. So he thought to do that, but that feels like buying time, honestly. I mean, he didn't uh, take the registration out of the glove box of the truck, Mm. but he was never really big on details. I forgot to mention that police were also immediately able to connect Andrew to Jeff and David's murders, not just by association, but also by the duffel bag he left there that was clearly marked with his name and address. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has a little, like, a little laminated card in it that's, like, got his name and where he lives. Gosh. Can you imagine? He probably, like, turned back to grab his duffel bag and was like, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. We're in Jersey now. There go those <laughs> clothes, you know. But um, like also switching out the license plates would make it so he didn't get pulled over probably. Mm-hmm. But but that's like as far as he's thinking. Right. So now Andrew's in Miami. Okay, he gets there where he is then able to hide in very plain sight for, hold on to your hats, two months. Two whole months? Uh-huh. Yeah. Why? Did it take them so long? Hmm. Like he did, he left a like a trail, like a breadcrumb trail. He's there. Right. Well, nobody can really answer that firmly. Nobody's like, oh, well, here's why. It was very difficult. Most like law enforcement sources are like, it just took time. Wow. Yeah. A lot of places call this like the most like least effective botched manhunt in United States history. Like it hmm. just didn't go well. I'm going to do my best to explain. But again, this is probably full of holes. So here's the wiki roundup on what happened next, and then we'll fill it in. Okay. On May 12th, Andrew checked into the Normandy Plaza Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida, where he paid $29 per night in cash. So uh, not up to those usual standards of his. Right. Even in 1997, a $29 a night motel is not going to be great. Mm-hmm. So on June 12th, so then he hides there for like a, like a month. This is what's in the wiki roundup, right? On June 12th, he was listed on the FBI 10 most wanted fugitives list. While the manhunt unsuccessfully focused on Reese's stolen truck that Andrew was using, he hid in plain sight for two months. Andrew used his own name to pawn a stolen item on July 7th, despite knowing that police routinely reviewed pawn shop records. On July 14th, seemingly out of money, Andrew checked out of his hotel without paying for his last night there. So what they're not telling you here is that after a couple weeks in the Normandy, which Andrew spent hiding as best as he could, he couldn't really stand doing nothing anymore. Living like the poors was not for him. So he began seeking out fellow escorts and drug dealers. Remember, he's very good at finding a scene, Mm -hmm. and Miami is full of scene. And he managed to get himself into a few social circles under an assumed name, also something he's good at. But he did, like, tell some people he had done stuff. (laughs) Like, people came forward later saying, like, yeah, he was like, oh, I murdered some people. (laughs) He wasn't... to murder people to get here. I know. I went on a five-state killing spree. Just to get to Miami. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't super quiet, but, like, when people say that, you're like, you're shitting me, whatever. You know, nobody believes that. So... 
eventually, after he couldn't stay at this like shitty no-tell motel anymore, he broke into a houseboat belonging to a German man named Torsten Reinen. Sounds like a horrible, like hostile style murderer. Right. He sounds like an Eli Roth character. For sure. But that might just be because he's German. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. a lovely man living on a house. Oh, no, he's a terrible human. Oh, was he? Yeah, oh, yeah. Torsten owned and operated a bunch of bathhouses, but was currently residing in Las Vegas. And he bopped around because he did a lot of, like, weird criminal activity. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. My guess is that Andrew knew somebody who knew Torsten, because obviously if he's involved in the scene, he owns a bunch of gay bathhouses. And when asked, people were like, they're just bathhouses. And he was like, no, they are for gay people. So, like, right. that's what they were. So, but my guess is that Andrew met somebody on the scene who told him, like, you know, this rich German guy has this houseboat that he's never on. Okay. It's empty. And he was like, oh, I could, like, get in there. And so he did that, and he knew he wouldn't be discovered. And so this is how we make our way back to the date we started at. Okay, so it is July 15th. Now, according to the Wiki Roundup, Andrew checked out of his no tell motel on July 14th. But I think it was sooner than that because the next day is, I mean, it may not have been. This is, again, a very vague detail. He he hides out in it later, but that's mm -hmm. what you have. Anyway, it is now July 15th, 1997. And before we get into another crime, Leslie, why don't you like set us up? What What are we looking at? What is 1997 like? We're in Miami. It's mm -hmm. sunny. It's 1997. Right. What's going on? Well, my only idea of Miami in 1997 is just the birdcage. So. <laughs> they did shoot it on location, yeah. so. Yeah. So, like, I honestly thought about just giving an entire summary of that movie. <laughs> being like, that's Miami. <laughs> Perfect. But I'm just going to say, maybe just go watch the movie. And that's Miami to me. I actually was in Miami in 1997 Were at you? one point. Yeah, right. just like before I went on a cruise with my family. It was, yeah. I mean, it was You would have been was. like a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah. it was very birdcagey. Yeah. I will say that. Yeah, yeah. It's accurate enough. Okay. So it's just the birdcage. So go watch that. Perfect. But other things happening in 1997. Tell us. <laughs> uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer started its first season. Mm-hmm. The Simpsons became the longest-running animated TV series, so I assume that they still are at yeah. this point. Yeah, they definitely are. <laughs> um, Tiger Woods became the youngest golfer ever to win the Masters, and young girls everywhere finally understood how their dads could just sit and watch TV of, like, golf all day. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, young girls are watching me play golf. Yeah, I know. Then it got weird. Yeah. <laughs> and in 1997, he was a young man Not himself. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ellen DeGeneres came out of the closet. Oh, boy. Yes. Right. There was a time when Ellen wasn't a lesbian. I know. So strange. Weird. Titanic was the most popular <laughs> film. That was out. We saw it like a thousand times in theaters. See, we did come back we to did. it. We did. We <laughs> did. Uh, beanie Babies were a must-have item. I will never get over the scam that this was. I know, you poor thing. Uh, trash bags. Full of Beanie Babies. <laughs> all the Beanie Babies. <laughs> There's literally no, like, no millennial that I know who does not have a trash bag of Beanie Babies in their attic somewhere. I definitely have Beanie Babies in my parents' attic. Yeah. I don't want them in my house. Thank you. Goodbye. 
Yeah. My I mean, kids got a few of them. Yeah, some of them are cute. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, play with them. They're not relics. Yeah. <laughs> They're toys. It's fine. <laughs> the joke will be on us when we... <laughs> Like when years. one of us has the one crab with the wonky eye that's yeah. worth $4 million. Yeah. <laughs> Fashion trends included denim on denim, chokers <gasps> and camis, oh, sheer no. black dresses and skirts, duster coats, leather pants, low-rise jeans that really only looked good on Jennifer Love Hewitt. I, re- I have this <laughs> fashion. I remember it really hard. A lot of midriffs. Yeah, I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. I had every single thing you just listed. Yep. Bucket hats. Yeah. Short sleeves over long sleeves. Gender neutral looks. Sorry, yeah. Gen Zers, but this was uh, 1990s. That's mm-hmm. when we started doing that. Um, other fashion trends I spotted during my search were a lot of pastels, glitter, and feathers. Love those too. Love those. Yep. Sarah Jessica Parker's character, Carrie, on Sex and the City, made drinking Cosmopolitans popular at the bars. Love a Cosmo. I know. I thought, like, I turned 21, and I was like, I'll have a Cosmo. I know. Sam. And then I was like, these are gross. I did. I will still occasionally order yeah. one. They're not my favorite anymore because everyone puts too much cranberry juice in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like a tequila Cosmo. So same thing, just with tequila. It's so good. Oh, that's probably better. It's delicious. It, it rocked my world. I want it. Yeah. I don't know if that has a name, but I'd like it to be Leslie. But it's called the Leslie now. Yeah. Great. <laughs> a trip to the mall was was not complete without getting some Dippin' Dots. Huh? I know. They were so gross. No one ever eats them either. No. My kids are like, Dippin' Dots are great. I have to have them. And like $15 later, they're on the ground melting in tiny little pools. I know. I actually never had them because I, I couldn't. I was lactose intolerant. <laughs> So I always went for the Auntie Anne's pretzels. Way better. Way yeah. better choice. You made a way better choice. Yeah. You weren't cool in school unless you had Dunkaroos. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dunkaroos. They were good. The uh, pizza Lunchables were so gross, but we all ate them. Violet like they were. them. Yeah. Like they're straight out of Naples. <laughs> we're just like, look at us. <laughs> Our little creations. <laughs> We're Italian. Oh, God. They're like uncooked flatbread and pepperonis and then like cold sauce. What were we thinking? I don't know, but we love them. I I can still taste it. I didn't eat them, but Violet does eat them. She likes them for whatever reason. So wild. Some popular songs. Mbop by Hanson. Love a Hanson moment. (laughs) Backstreet Back. All right. right. (laughs) They are back. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Also back. I know. Oh, my gosh. Right? We're just bringing it all back this year. Uh, Torn. Oh. By Natalie. Nothing's fine, yeah. I'm mm-hmm. torn. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the Chumbawamba song, oh, I Get Knocked Down. I drink a whiskey drink. I drink a Leslie drink. <laughs> <laughs> I drink all the drinks. <laughs> and then I fall in the sink. It's in the night away. Boy, that had a moment. Yeah. Kind of glad it's over. I know. Um, so also because we were talking about Versace this week, I looked up when his last runway show was, which was in Paris in 1997. So this was just like a couple weeks before yeah. he died. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to look up like what was on the runway. And it doesn't really match any of the clothes that I <laughs> suggested. Of course that not. Were, this is high fashion. Yeah, this is high fashion. Um, and obviously, these are looks to come as well. Like, he's, like, starting the fashion right. train, right? So, these are looks to um, 
maybe 1998 will have in store for us. I don't know. For us, probably 2000. Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, so I also realized during all of this that uh, I am not, though I love fashion, I am not, I just don't get it. <laughs> get out of here. I don't understand like the terms. I realized that this was like a, a harder dive for me than than I wanted it to be. But I tried really hard. So instead, what I'm going to do is just kind of go over some of the looks that are on the runway. I'll describe them to you guys. And, um, you know, just I'm going to use like what I know. Listen, we don't know terminology either. Maybe yeah. some of us do. I don't. It's fine. So some of the first couple looks that came down the runway were these like pinstripe suits. Uh, they're all black, white pinstripes. And they have somewhere like you're like all business up top and then like real short skirts. So like really good for just like having sex in the office. <laughs> so you can be versatile. It also probably works for like Zoom calls like later in life. You're like very businessy up here. Like a sexy but like look, things can just happen down there all day if you want it to. Yeah. Um, they also uh, he's really big this year into like like the shoulder pads. A nice structured um, top. Yeah, nice structured top. So whether you're sleeveless or you have like long sleeves, they're just like real straight, very futuristic looking. I know like. Like like Jane Jensen. Yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He also really loves, uh, there's a couple of like pinstripe kind of bodycon dresses that have like one long sleeve and then no sleeve on the other one. Oh so that's really great for like softball or baseball players. They can keep like the pitchers can keep their arm warm. Or if you like want to go to the touch tank at the aquarium. Yeah. You just want, want the one handed. Um, yes. And you don't yeah. want to get your sleeve wet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you can just kind of turn like be like, I'm business. I'm sticking my hand in water. <laughs> I can fix the toilet now. Yeah, Exactly. Then we have some cute little dresses. They so he Versace. What I noticed is that he loves golds and silver. Oh yes. So the gold dress was like a Versace mm -hmm. thing. Yes. So these ones are like black dresses, um, very like bodycon, like slip up the side, but they have like gold embellishment with like flowers and Pretty. um, and then another one had like blue and silver. But then what's cool is is that each of those girls had the matching like style in a coat so Ooh. yeah so you could like switch it up um he did have some dresses on here which are very like 1990s which are just like they're just like straight across and like a short dress like very just simple with like spaghetti straps and mm -hmm. then you had like a huge choker around so that's just like these are all very Carrie Bradshaw too mm -hmm. so this tracks with Sex the City yeah so some of my favorite ones that I thought were really versatile mm -hmm, mm -hmm. were these, it, it was more like a gown. So you had this gown, there is a lavender color and a blush color, um, but it had like a collar kind of like Maleficent. Ooh. And then the shoulders again went out like straight, like mm -hmm. very futuristic. And then you had a very like low cut cleavagey look here where it just draped down. But one side draped further down the boob. So it was probably really good for like breastfeeding women. Sure. You could just pull that out really easily. Or like w half a girl gone wild. Yes. A girl gone like, yeah, like mild. Yes, a girl gone mild, but then you could go wild. And mm -hmm. then it like, like, I don't know what that word is, like ruched. Like yeah, it. where it's like puckered. Yeah. So that's, again, great for probably like postnatal women 
Um, to That's just, definitely who's going to wear these. Yeah. Dresses. It's just very, very helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, he has some like leathery pieces too, which are a very body fitting. Yeah. And then um, the glitter is there. So he has these dresses that are just kind of like draped over you. Very like Greek style. Yeah, and, that's uh, well, a big influence for him was uh, Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he does also have his like signature gold dresses, which um, he does gold or silver a lot of times. Yeah. And these ones, I also learned about him where a lot of times he fits them on the model like that day. Like he'll just drape fabrics that's over wild. and creates like these looks. So that's why they do kind of look like they're draped on because and they're not. Johnny Versace. He could just do what he wants. And then it always ends with a bride. So he has like, um, I think the motto was named Naomi. We all love a wedding. We all love a wedding. So she comes out and it literally looks like something that maybe like Britney Spears would have wanted to wear to her many weddings. Um, But yeah, it's just really short. Just looks like something I'd literally wear to Atlantic City (laughs) with a, um, what do you call those? The, The veil? The veil. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of like the cross pieces. So that was going to be like the style coming, I guess, for people that had money. Yeah. It's funny that you say Britney Spears because her recent wedding dress was Versace. There you go. It looks nothing like those things, though. It's pretty, yeah. pretty simple. And this would be Donatella, not Johnny, obviously. Right. But mm-hmm. like still. Yep. I bet some of her racier older stuff was Versace, too. I'm sure oh, of for it. For sure. For sure. Yes, it's such like an interesting style. It's so like bold. It is all sexy all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. And and also it does like, I didn't realize when I think of Italian fashion, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize I was mostly thinking of his styles. So he had... Armani probably, yeah. mm -hmm. But some of like the animal prints that Mm -hmm. he would do, things like that. I was like, oh, that was a Versace thing. So mm-hmm. when I see that done elsewhere now, I'm like, oh. There you go. I yeah, he has a big influence on fashion. So yeah, I, you know, his fashion is very versatile for athletes, mothers. Aquarium goers <laughs> Aquarium, the world over. Yes. Love it. Yeah. Um, and working women and men probably. And for that moment when you're like, what I really want to do right now is be a hoe. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay, because you're like a glamorous hoe. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. I really feel like that's probably what we all want to be deep down. Mm -hmm. Just a very glamorous hoe. Yeah. And that's what he was always trying to go for, I think, was um, empowering women. So it obviously went one way or the other. Like some women or some people believed that it was demeaning some of his fashion. And others were like, no, I feel very empowered in it. Like the, because he did that S&M collection, which all the bondage kind of looking. Yeah, in 1992, his runway show was all based on S&M. So everything was covered in buckles and straps. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very like revealing and tight and, you know, it looked like S&M gear. Mm -hmm. So. But it was like a gay man making it for women. And also (laughs) he, he was very close to the women in his family. Mm Mm-hmm. So I kind of find it hard to believe that he was objectifying them. Yeah. I do also think that I don't know if these quotes are coming from America, which partly we can be a prudish country compared to his probably like Italian upbringing and stuff. But there's I do think that his main drive was to empower with fashion 
Yeah, and he also used influences that he saw. And if he was, like, in gay clubs where they had, like, leather night and shit, like, mm-hmm. or bondage or whatever's happening, he's seeing that and going, oh, I'm inspired by this. Yeah. And I create mostly women's fashion. Men's do. There was men's wear mm-hmm. stuff. But, like, obviously, he's just going to use what he is inspired by to create. And that's what happened. Right. I, I really don't think he was, like, a crazy misogynist. Mm-hmm. There, there, Carl Lager, Lagerfeld was, 100%. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't don't tell me Chanel is great and he loved women. He did not love women, but um, but I think Versace did. So yeah, cool. Yeah, well, that was nineteen ninety seven. Love it. Thank you for that. So okay, let's get back to, now that we're back in the Versace mode. Let's get back into his perspective. We're back in that beautiful day where he walked to the newsstand and the sun is shining. Mm-hmm. The world was still and calm, and on the sidewalk, Johnny's black logo slides quietly flipped in that familiar pattern that beach dwellers all know too well. And for those who don't know because they were born in the Donatella era, as we just mentioned, Gianni Versace is the man who made supermodels. He really created the concept of the supermodel. He Mm -hmm. had these women that he used in everything and like created this, you know, elite career for them. And he also designed couture clothing so sexy. It was once said that while Armani made dress wives, Versace dressed mistresses. Ooh, yes. I know. Isn't that a good one? And he was inspired by everything in his world from ancient Greek mythology and the, you know, Italian Mediterranean setting of his youth to gritty 1970s punk rock culture. He very famously dressed Elizabeth Hurley in a black dress that was held together with big gold safety pins. That Mm -hmm. was like a big deal. That's your punk rock coming in. And just everything he touched was like infused with sex and glamour. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't want that, you know? So though his house may have had big iron gates, Gianni himself was more like an open door. From everything I read, he was very kind and creative, generous and gregarious, and of course, always had himself placed in an opulent setting wearing something impossibly cool and tanned to the max. Like there aren't a whole lot of people that have a bad word to say about this guy. And it would be easy to do that considering how famous he was. Mm-hmm. But most people are like, no, he's the life of the party. It was great. So <laughs> this morning, Johnny had risen a little after the sun and walked three blocks down South Beach's famous Ocean Drive, that's the big main drag, to the News Cafe, to buy magazines, a habit he has nearly every morning. So the news cafe is basically a newsstand slash place where you can get coffee and a pastry. It's like a little cafe. Ocean Drive is dotted with gorgeous historic art deco hotels and in-demand bars and restaurants. Several hotels have served as the setting for films. Like Leslie mentioned, The Birdcage was filmed and shot at hotels on Ocean Drive. So was Scarface. So you can see why someone as famous and wealthy as Gianni Versace would still elect to walk by himself down to the corner store and back on mornings such as these. Frankly, I struggle to think of anything more pleasant. It was probably a total delight. And like, he didn't probably have a whole lot of time alone to just kind of like be. So I can see that. He was dressed in a white t-shirt, black shorts and sandals, which she like, designers often wear very simple things themselves Mm -hmm. because they know that's frequently what looked but it best probably still like a $300 oh 100% yeah well his slides were like Versace slides obviously so it's like the Olsen twins clothes they look like they're wearing a trash bag and it was (laughs) $800,000 no oh girls no anyway so Johnny walked to the newsstand spent $15 on magazines he bought Business Week Vogue Entertainment Weekly People and The New Yorker 
got to stay in in the know. Perfectly well-rounded for what Mm -hmm. he is, actually, though. Yeah. Then he turned around and headed back home. Gianni had plans that afternoon to play tennis with his friend, Lazaro Quintana, who had already arrived at Casa Casarina and was sitting in the dining room, as I mentioned, having coffee with Gianni's partner, Antonio D'Amico. Gianni and Antonio had been together, I'm recapping a little bit for you guys, for 15 years, basically married, okay? So this is like just domestic life. Lazaro and Antonio chatted while Gianni made his way back home at approximately 8.45. Birds were singing, a light breeze was blowing, and Gianni took out his keys and began unlocking his massive front gate because back then you still had to put a key Mm -hmm. and a lock to your big giant front gate. When suddenly, two sharp sounds permeated the air, followed by two soft ones. Quote, all of a sudden we hear bang, bang, two shots, Lazaro would later tell police. Then, quote, Antonio got up and he went to the window that faces the gate to enter the mansion and he yelled out, no, 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 and I ran out. For a moment, there was silence, even from the birds. One of their own had been fallen in the moment, too. The clean white front steps ran red with blood where Gianni lay dying. He had been shot twice in the head, once in the face and once behind the ear. Next to him lay a bird who caught part of the same gunfire. The bullet had pierced the fabric of that Miami morning as though it were a brilliantly painted backdrop. A woman stood by the front gate looking on in stunned silence. Remember, this is morning. People are out. And this is a very heavily traveled road. When she saw Lazaro and Antonio, she pointed. She couldn't speak. She was so shocked. She just witnessed something awful, obviously. But she pointed to a man who could be seen walking quickly away from the scene wearing a gray t-shirt and black shorts. Go get him. Go get him, Antonio shouted. And Lazaro gave chase. He ran after the man shouting, you bastard, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Lazaro followed the man through the streets of Miami until they came to a busy road. The man had crossed, but by the time Lazaro arrived, traffic had resumed. So it's like that classic chase scene where the cars start coming. But um, cars kind of caught on to this. And one slowed down in the intersection, rolled down his window and said to Lazaro, he's got a gun. Right. So when traffic gave way, Lazaro crossed the street and found himself yet again just behind the man who was... um, kind of facing down the barrel of an alley. So the guy was about to turn down an alley. Lazaro was like a few feet away from him. The man then turns his arm and body, but not his head, so he can't see his face, and points the gun at him. Only for a few seconds before continuing on. So, okay, let's hurry this up. Lazaro had followed him to a point, and then he realized he could, we're back at a choose-your-own-adventure, keep following him down an alley, or turn left to tell a patrol cop. I hope it was the cop. He chose the cop. Okay. I know. This is a smart moment. Thank God. And Lazaro ran up to the cop, grabbed him by the shoulders, and simply said, Mr. Versace has been shot. Okay. Surely this is a pretty big surprise for that guy. But then again, he's a Miami cop, so maybe not. But they did spring into action very quickly. The cop radioed back and then ran towards the direction of the shooter with Lazaro. When they reached, this all happened very quickly, by the way. When they reached the end of the alleyway, he had run down. A group of men pointed towards a garage, saying that a man had run in there. They're like, go get him. Now, clearly it's a super shifty situation or it wouldn't have registered to them, but I still wonder why they didn't maybe like try to see what that guy was up to or stop him or something. Yeah. I don't know. He did have a gun, so maybe it was best to just let him do his illegal garage business and not ask questions. I don't know. No judgment. But Lazaro and the police officer rushed into the garage. And if I were writing fiction at this moment, I would say that the man with the gun simply evaporated on the spot because that's what it looked like. Looked like. He just like evaporated into smoke because his clothes were just there on the floor. Oh, wild. Yep. 
it looked like he had been standing there and just poof, gone. Ooh. So weird. We all know that doesn't really happen, but that's like exactly what he looked like because right next to the red Chevy truck were the clothing that this man had on. So a gray t-shirt and black shorts. Clearly he had gotten changed and had car had clothing in this car he could change okay. into and then keep going. But the man who was wearing those clothes just moments ago was nowhere to be seen. So meanwhile, back at Casacos Arena, 911 had been called numerous times because remember, Johnny's partner had stayed there with him. Officers and EMTs arrived almost immediately at the scene and they did do as much as they could for him. They, you know, got him in an ambulance and he did live until they got to the hospital, but a few minutes Ugh, after he passed. So yeah. Um, Antonio kind of just stood by in shock. His whole world was destroyed in an instant. The body, well, at that point, it was still Johnny, was removed and the investigation immediately began after that. So this is now an all out and out manhunt. You would think it would be quick. It's not. Another point is that, um, I'll explain this in a, when we're finished with the story, but like I said, Ryan Murphy did make a miniseries about this case. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that the actual Antonio, who has since died, was upset about is that when they filmed it, they have him like next to Johnny, like cradling him. And he was like, I didn't do that. I couldn't move. Right. I just stood there while he was dying. I did not sit down next to him and scream and grab him. Mm. He just felt very strongly like that that was a misrepresentation of the situation and how he reacted. Right. Not that he wouldn't want to be with him, but he was like, no, you don't understand. When you're in that state, sometimes your brain just stops working. And that's what happened. Yep. Which I think is important for him to have said. Yeah. But that's why we, when we see death on screen mm -hmm. and it doesn't match up to like how things are yeah. in like life, we're just like suspicious yep. sometimes of people when you're just like, it's shocking. Like, yeah, you can't, you don't know how you're going to react. That might yeah. totally knock you off your feet. He just like couldn't, couldn't process, mm -hmm. which is a valid reaction 100%. I mean, all reactions are valid, but that one is something we've seen several times. It definitely happens. So anyway, detectives show up ready to work because this case was like the highest profile imaginable. You can't fuck up Gianni Versace's murder. He was friends with Princess Diana and Elton John. Yeah. I mean, or so you would think. Yeah. <laughs> so the first detective to arrive on the scene took one look at the bird that was dead next to Gianni's body and said, this is a mafia killing. Uh, I have never heard of an instance where the mafia used a dead bird as a warning or a calling card. Horse heads, sure. Mm. Songbirds, no. But I mean, they must have had their reasons for thinking that. So, because he's Italian? Maybe. Yeah, I guess. Meanwhile, police officers flooded the garage where the smoke trail of their suspects lie dissipating and their search began there. And what do you think they found? Oh, yeah, the red truck, which lit up like a Christmas tree with FBI warrants. And all of Andrew's documents, his driver's license, passport, clippings of newspaper articles about him from okay. his previous crimes, a bag of clothing, his wallet. The truck had its registration in the glove box and all the um, and the license plates that he like took off. I think I think the license plate from the Lexus was in the back or something. There was mm -hmm. like a, a thing with license plates. I really can only see the photos in the FBI documents and then there's no description of the photos. Right. So I can only tell you what I saw. Um, and all of this is like, this is like handing someone a case. They're like, here it is. Here's everything yeah. about this guy, where he's been, what mm -hmm. he's done. So like clearly they're looking for somebody obsessed with Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> 
They love him. Yeah. It's his biggest fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, at this point in the case, they have also connected Andrew to Lee Miglin's killing. They did that mm-hmm. pretty quickly. But, um, you know, he he did leave the Jeep there. Right. So, and then they found his his car. And so, we're tracing everything. Now we found the truck. Mm-hmm. Bang, bang, bang. And still, it took authorities seven days to find oh Andrew Cunanan. And they didn't actually find him. Just wait for this. They did a lot of weird stuff. For one, they didn't put up the FBI wanted posters in the city limits of Miami. That's interesting. I don't know why they wouldn't do that. Hmm. But eventually something had to give. So on July 23rd, 1997, the houseboat that he was staying on had a caretaker. And this caretaker heard gunshots and rushed to see what had happened, obviously. And this guy carried his own handgun, by the way. He's a caretaker for this rich, weird German guy's boat, so Mm -hmm. okay. When he entered the boat's bedroom, he saw a bloody scene. He dropped his own handgun, ran out of the boat, and called the damn cops. Now, according to some investigators, the FBI responded to the call by showing up, surrounding the boat, announcing their presence, tear gassing it, and then going in, which I'm like, this guy told you, essentially, he heard gunshots and then saw somebody bloodied and, and pretty much dead. Right. That is when you put on a show, that's a show. That's wild. Why wouldn't you just send people in first? Yeah. This is one guy. hmm <sighs> Okay. But whatever. I'm not an FBI member. Maybe this is the standard procedure. So, of course, they went in and, and he was already dead. Mm-hmm. They found Andrew with a bullet in his brain, surrounded by bloody bandages, cotton swabs, gauze pads, and penicillin pills. Pills that were not his. They were clearly some he just, like, found or got Mm -hmm. to treat. Well, he is a pharmacist. Yeah, part-time. Now, this is a quote from a local newspaper. Um, Authority said, quote, I believe he did have a wound on his stomach. And this is documented several places. He has a little cut, like, just above his navel. And he was treating it himself with the medical supplies found on board. And a spokeswoman for the Miami office of the FBI said today um, that she did not know when or how Andrew suffered this injury. The wound near Andrew's navel appeared to have troubled him for a while, possibly before he um, shot Gianni Versace. Uh, The Sun Sentinel of Fort Lauderdale reported today, quoting sources, like they were like, oh, I think this is from one of his other murders. Right. No. Or it was fucking meth. You're just picking mm. yourself because you are on meth. People oh, maybe. do that a lot. But who am I to guess? Also, he was probably like, well, I do have a lot of AIDS, so I have to take penicillin for this cut that I have. If it was from any other of the murders, it first of all, I, I don't think it would have been from Versace's because he just walked no. up behind him and shot him. I was thinking it, it might have been from... Lee's, the, right? Either Lee or Reese, like depending... Reese was another one where he just walked up and shot him. Oh, yeah. So the only thing that he used like sharp force objects in and not the gun was mm-hmm. Lee's murder and this was months ago. Right. So if this is something he's been treating for months. It's not a little cut. It's mm-hmm. like a huge festering wound that's going to kill him. Right. Which is not how they describe it in any report. So I don't really know. My, in my brain, I'm like, he cut himself and fucking picked at it and then was using all this Maybe, stuff. Yeah. But I, again, this is my speculation, not facts. Andrew's body was found with the Taurus pistol that he stole from Jeff Trail. It was the same weapon he used to kill David Madsen, William Reese, and Gianni Versace, then himself. There was no note, no explanation. And here's the kicker. As much as he thought he might have, 
Andrew never had HIV in the first place. He was tested at his autopsy, mm-hmm. clean bill of health. Versace, on the other hand, though, that's a different story. Gianni Versace's body was like pretty much immediately taken by his family and cremated, so wasn't able to be tested for anything. Though what people do know about him is that right before his death, he had been very sick mm. for a while. They, they, his family said he had uh, ear cancer, which is like so unbelievably rare. And then about the time when medications that made managing AIDS and HIV like remarkably easier came into play, he made a pretty big recovery. Mm. So it was not, I mean, like public, but it was talked about that he was HIV positive. Okay. So this is something that Andrew could have known mm-hmm. easily. And that lines up with the like, well, they gave me AIDS. And in my brain, I, I mean, like, I don't see any way how he could think Gianni Versace gave him AIDS. Right. But he sure might want people to think that. Mm-hmm. Because if this is the end of a, ah, these men might have given me AIDS trail then his finale is like someone super famous. So he's going out with like, well, I was having an affair with this famous man. Right. That's what it seems like to me. But there is no explanation. And if he was an Armani man. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he had met Versace. Some mm-hmm. people, I mean, if you follow the Ryan Murphy version, which, okay, so here's the other thing I'm going to say about this case. It is not well represented, in my opinion, almost ever. Like, it's always just billed as the murder of Gianni Versace. And like, mm-hmm. as we have seen, it was way more than that. His was like the end of the crescendo, and that is all. And and I don't think it should be framed that way. Uh, but if you want the vibe and what things looked like, Ryan Murphy's presentation is immaculate. I mean, like, it is accurate down to the number of drips of blood on the mm-hmm. stairs when Versace died. Like he's, it, it looks correct. Right. So um, while the content is something that the Versace family doesn't like because his speculations are, um, are connected to uh, a pretty famous book about this case, which is also contested. And they say that like Andrew was carrying on a secret affair with Versace. Mm. There's just no, there's just no evidence of that. So okay. like we can't really... And the Versace family, like, really did not like how Johnny was presented and that, that they speculated that. So I can't say that the facts are right, but I can say that it, the vibe is immaculate. It's perfect. So if you want to see what it looks like, absolutely watch that. And it'll be entertaining because Ryan Murphy doesn't do bad things. So anyway, there are also, like, several other movies and stuff, but I didn't really check any of those out. So, yeah, reasons for doing this, I mean, we only can really guess. Right. In my opinion, Versace was his, like, big bang, his way to go out Mm -hmm. and be remembered forever. Some people think it was he just saw Versace on the street and knew who he was and was like, oh, I'm going to do this. But I think he planned it. I think he knew when he was going to be coming back to his house because it was a habit he had doing. um, He did this almost every morning Mm -hmm. where he went on the same walk at around the same time and came back. He knew he would be there by himself, unlocking his gate with his back turned, and it was easy to shoot him. Mm. Yeah, I think so. So I think it was definitely a planned event. But I mean, either he really had lost his mind and thought these men had done something to him. And Mm -hmm. Versace, maybe he thought it snubbed him after meeting him that one time or whatever. Right. Or it was all part of the game, man. It was all part of getting attention. I know. I think think it was a drug-induced paranoia. Sure. 
I think it, just it was made some of column A, like, some of column B, honestly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So. Wild. Yeah. Uh, and why are we talking about this case in our pride selection? Well, I think it's important to present all sides of, you know, LGBTQ plus crime. But this one I think is important because it's full of like misconceptions that mm. people have. Like he didn't actually, this guy didn't actually have AIDS. He wasn't like some genius serial killer who like, you know, manipulated men and then killed them. He was mm -hmm. like a mentally ill narcissist. <laughs> he right. just was what he was. And, you know, Versace was a very big deal in the community. Mm -hmm. And this was a big deal. Mm -hmm. in the community. So I thought um, it would be interesting to see a different angle. Right. But this also, this whole thing really changed the, like, queer community in Miami. Yeah, it definitely did. It had a huge impact on yeah. them. It, it changed, like, within that year, a lot of people were, it, I think that obviously people they're bailed still, from Miami too. They sold they their did. houses and left. Mm -hmm. And there was like a um, a change where they were, I remember reading something that had to do with like more, it was, they still obviously had a nightlife. Like if you go yeah. to Miami, they still have a nightlife. Oh, yeah. But a lot of the scene has changed from mm -hmm. that where it's not like EDM kind of music yeah, yeah, yeah. like so much. It's a little bit more like hip hop and stuff like that. But they also were talking about how more businesses came in. So it was becoming more of like an e-commerce place, which mm -hmm. actually was still good because there was still such a community there. Yeah. But then the prices of housing went up and things yep. like that. And that ended up kind of pushing some people out. Um, so there was just like a cultural change within Miami, like yeah. all because of this whole thing. Yeah. It's an impactful story. And lastly, the one thing that struck me when reading back to back to back to back police documents about this case is that, you know, Andrew's described in all of them. Cops have to describe him. And he's always described as very gay, talks very gay, has a gay laugh, looks really gay, stands gay. And I'm reading all this going like, what? what is any of that? Like, we would never, that's not language anymore. Right. At least it shouldn't be. But it was such a portrait of a different time where they were just targeting this gay mm -hmm. man. And granted, like, he deserved it. Right. But, like, it, it was so oddly focused on things, mm -hmm. wrong things, in my opinion. Right. Rather than pulling back and looking at it for what it was. Mm -hmm. And also, like, God, he's compared to a lot of people. He's compared to people who um, also killed celebrities, like mm -hmm. uh, Mark David Chapman, who shot John Lennon, or the man who... Oh, God, I can't remember. There's another one. He's compared to those people. And he wasn't like that. He wasn't obsessed with a celebrity. He liked Versace, but it wasn't like, I love him so much, I have to kill him. Right. Nobody's saying that. And he's also compared to like genius serial killers. First of all, he's a spree killer. Everything happens in one little time period. There's no cooling off, not a serial killer. But second of all, he wasn't like that either. He didn't kill because he was like really into killing people. At least that's not what it seemed like. To me, if I had to make a comparison, if I had to say, you have to put this guy in a category with another person you've covered, the only person I could do that with is Michael Alec. Hmm. Yeah, that's exactly all I was thinking of while you were doing this. Yep. Yeah. The disco bloodbath, party mm -hmm. monster murders, murder. Just one. I mean, things got out of control in your desperate search for recognition and mm -hmm. fame and glamour and mm -hmm. somebody dies. Yeah. And with Michael Alec, 
it was backed up with a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only one person, thank goodness. But with Andrew Cannon, it was really just a gift for manipulation. Right. So those are all my theories. Okay. Toast. Toast. After 16 hours of Versace. <laughs> well, to Versace. Yes, to Johnny mm. Versace and his family who mm-hmm. have continued to go want to do great things. His sister Donatella obviously now runs the company and they're doing just mm-hmm. fine. So right. cheers. Cheers to um, Jeffrey Trail and David Madsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to William Reese and Lee Miglin also mm-hmm. and all of their families. Into Antonio and Lazaro. Yeah. So those guys. Um, and in this case, like, oh boy. <laughs> we we would have totally been involved and like caught up in the fun of this guy. Yeah. Not the downside, but like, I'm just here to admit that like, if I had a fabulous friend like that, I probably wouldn't assume he was killing people. I would just go along for the ride. Right. Probably before the drug stuff. Right. Of course. <laughs> So I will say that uh, if we were in any of these places at any of those times. If we were a famous fashion designer. And and we were notable enough. Yeah. I got to do better than that. Um, Hold on. But we're women. It would never have been us. True. That's the thing. So I guess. You just do it. Yeah. Sometimes these are hard. They are hard. I mean, I have it written down, but I'm looking at it like that doesn't nail it enough because really the fact of the matter is it would never have been us. We're women. He wasn't after women. I know, but that's the whole point of if. if so we, then if we were fabulous, wealthy, older gay men. And picked up the phone when he needed help. That's right. <laughs> he needed a car. That's right. We, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. champagne. <laughs> we need it. Give me money. Give me money, please. Please. <laughs> mm. <laughs>